Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You are looking at a remarkable idea. An idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends, are about to witness this idea become a reality. For this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert. Michael Deacon, Michael, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon. From the wastelands of California, my name is Michael, and I'm a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First-time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show, a place where you don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Oh, yeah, live and direct right now. I want to welcome all of you greatly to the program. If this is the first time you are listening to the sound of my voice, I do thank you tremendously for being here. My guest this evening is Colin Flaherty. Colin is an award-winning reporter and author of the number one best-selling book, Don't Make the Black Kids Angry, The Hoax of Black Victimization and Those Who Enabled It. He is also the author of White Girl Bleed a Lot, The Return of Racial Violence to America, and how the media ignores it. Once again, thank you for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Good evening to you out there, wherever you may be. I thank you greatly on your choice of being here. Wise move. What's up, boys and girls? We've got yet another bit of a rattlesnake here tonight. It's a full house. Prepare yourselves for what's about to go down. Without further ado, let's get down to brass tacks. Colin, are you there? Hey, Michael. How's here I am. It, how's it going, my friend? Oh, happy to be here. That makes two of us. So, Colin, welcome to End of Days, the Michael Deacon program. And, of course, I want to thank you tremendously for spending your time with all of us here tonight. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, me too. And, of course, you're the author of the book, White Girl Bleed a Lot, 
and Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. Those books have caught nationwide attention. Yeah, yeah, I'm very grateful for all the people who read the books. I'm very, you know, you're always surprised when you do something like that, and the books, they, they touch so many people. In this case, these books are touching a lot of people who are looking at this enormous level of black violence and denial, whether they see it in their neighborhood or on their TV, and they're sitting there going, I thought I was the only one who noticed that. So that's what I do in these books. I dot, And on my videos and other things, I document what the reporters are saying about this incredible level of black violence in this country. And then I show, using video, I show what really happened. And we document how much denial, deceit, and delusion is surrounding this, and we show how much damage that it does. By the way, I've been saying denial, deceit, and delusion so much because of you. I, I think it's hilarious. Oh, good. You know what? Then you got to get yourself one of the denial, deceit, delusion coffee cups. I got yeah. to. I, I definitely will because I've been saying that uh, quite often, and it, it's just it rolls off so good at the end of your tongue there. I, I just love saying that. I got a million of them. <laughs> it's so funny. And, of course, it's very interesting to have you on here. So much has been going on in the media, and a lot of the things that you talk about I truly believe you're pretty accurate with what you describe here. You are backed with the facts. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't really, there's, when I do a video or a book, I don't, I don't really like, I'm not asking anybody to take my word for anything. I'm not saying, hey, I'm a reporter with 50 journalism awards. I got a dude out of prison. So don't, you know, so let, so I'm going to tell you something. Don't ask me to back it up. That's why I use videos. Right. So many videos out there. So if I'm talking about like, okay, for example, Two stories today that came into my email yesterday and today. They're the exact same story. Two young white husbands killed by black people. Two what? Two wives saying the same thing. What happened to the love of my life? How did the tsunami of grief crash into my life? Four kids sitting there, no dad. And, you know, so that's a video. Those are videos that we put on local news. So, what I do is I connect the dots and I say, this is happening all over the place. It's black on white murder. It's it's so crazy out of proportion. And, and what's weird to me is you look at a guy like Jesse Smollett. Everybody, you know, we've been talking for a while that this was a hoax. Yes. And so the whole this guy gets the entire country to believe there are packs of white people roaming around in MAGA hats attacking black people. That's what he said, by the way. Remember That's the day true. after the attack, he said, hey, it's not just about me. This is happening all over the country. White people and MAGA hats are attacking black people all over the country. That's a fairy tale. But to me, it's strange that so many reporters were so eager to take this fairy tale, hook, line, and sinker, report it, spread it, give it credibility it didn't deserve. Meanwhile, at the exact same time, these two husbands are being killed by black people in different parts of the country almost the same day. I mean, one's a fairy tale, everybody pays attention. One's real life, and people are doing their darndest to be in denial, deceit, and delusion about it. So that's why, well, that's why you and I are talking right now. Amazing. Um, before we jump into that story, however, I did want to go back in time really quickly here, because I'm curious about you, Colin. I, I just was curious what you were like in your younger years, and... Uh, and your adolescent years, of course, and what were mom and dad like? Uh, you know, we, I grew up in a, 
you know, middle, lower middle class, Irish Catholic neighborhood. Everybody went to this, everybody went to the church. Everybody, everybody took the newspaper. Everybody, everybody had six kids, seven kids, eight kids. Uh, everybody, you know, you couldn't, you know, if you got, if you, if you walked 10 blocks away, you, you might not have known them, but they knew you because, you know, you went to school with their, with their kids or their mm. older, you know, every, so everybody knew everybody. It was Small a nice little feel. place to grow up. Okay. Uh, then one, then in 67, 68, overnight it turned. It turned from white neighborhood to a black neighborhood. All of a sudden there was lots of fights, violence. Everything changed. And, uh, you know, I was kind of paying attention to all that. And now when I write about this stuff now, I, I, um, I write, I, I find myself talking to a lot of people who went through the same thing, especially kids that went to public schools. And we talk about how, you know, they, every day in school to them, was like one long version of hell. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there was you know, harassment, torture, assaults, threats every day to school, from school. I was talking to one of my buddies this morning, had breakfast with him. I said, am I remembering this right? You know, what you got? Cause he was a public school kid. I was a Catholic school kid. Mm, there am I go. remembering this? How you guys, what happened to you in school? Just one long episode of violence after another. He goes, no, you're not, because it's worse than what you said it was. So anyway, that's what I was like as an adolescent. I saw a lot of that stuff. You saw a lot of stuff. I was wondering, what, what is this? And mom and dad obviously were religious, and that's kind of, you had that sort of upbringing. Yeah, my parents were devout Catholics. Okay. And, uh, you know, are you, they, are, I are guess you, they'd be a little, I guess they'd be a little disappointed <laughs> there. Are Religion you, didn't rub off on good old Colin. Hilarious. Are, are you still a Catholic by any, by any means? Uh, no, not really. Not really. Okay. Understood. And you, do you recall what exactly was the turning point for you when you started questioning, uh, the pre-programmed narratives that we hear? Is this an adolescent question or the uh, adult question now about getting, when I started covering this other stuff? Indeed. That's more of the adult side. Now, now, oh, okay. now that you're getting older and you start to question the narrative. Well, um, I kind of always, you know, I always knew there was some, you know, I always knew that the experience I had was different than the experience pe- I saw people talking on TV about. Mm-hmm. That bla- and the experience I saw on TV my whole life was that black people were relentless victims of relentless white racism all the time, everywhere. That explains everything. And that was not my experience with the fellas when I was growing up. And but but I found since talking to hundreds and hundreds of victims and hearing their stories and emails, I'm writing a book about this, by the way. Um. Hearing their stories, I realized everybody thought the same thing. They didn't really think anybody else was going through it. And so people were going through this intense violence, tense, it's really intense kind of violence in their lives. The parents didn't know it. So I always knew something was going on. And I didn't, but I didn't start writing about this topic. So when I became, you know, when I, when I, when I went, became all grown up. Sure. Uh, I became, I became a reporter. I won lots of awards. I won a, I won a, you know, I won a big award and I was on, you know, some national story. I got a black guy out of prison once. Mm-hmm. Purse, just one, just one guy, little old Colin, got him out. I showed he was unjustly convicted for trying to kill his white girlfriend. His name is Kelvin Wiley, if anybody out there wants to look it up. Anyway, so I was a reporter, but I thought I was out of the reporting racket. I had a PR business. I was doing this and doing that. Then one day I was visiting my brother and, uh, he was, he's a guest, he was the guest host of a talk radio station in Wilmington, Delaware. I was living in California, been nice. there for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw a story come out of Philadelphia. It said 13 Asian kids 
went to the emergency room because they were beaten up at South Philadelphia High School. Did a quick research. That's a black school. 95% black, just a smattering of Asians. The long story short is they were torturing those Asian kids for years. My goodness. Asian immigrants, all they wanted to do was go to school and learn. They were, they were assaulted, tortured, hassled, threatened. They went to the black prince, went to the black teacher, can't do anything. Black principal, can't do anything. Black superintendent, she said, you have to get, she printed, gave them a flyer saying, you Asian kids have to learn how to get along with black students and stop antagonizing them. So I started asking around, like, what is this? What, I mean, what's going on here? Why is there so much black violence in this school? Then the reporters at this radio station where I was doing this show with my brother, they looked at me and said, Colin, race has nothing to do with that. So what are you talking about? And then, uh, right. So then I kind of like opened my mind, not just to the violence, but to the denial from reporters, denial, deceit, and delusion, everybody. And then all of a sudden, this was kind of like the age, you know, the video started coming into its own. Mm. So I didn't have to. I didn't have to just go and go somewhere and go, you know, when I was a kid, this happened, then that happened, that happened. No, what I did was say, I grabbed video and I said, look at this. Look at a thousand people rampaging through the streets of Philadelphia, setting cars on fire, beating people up, pulling people out of restaurants, setting cars on fire. I mean, look at that. That's on video. Yeah, that's, that's a black thing. What, what is this all about? And at some point, when people see these videos and they hear my stories that are very well documented, they kind of look at them and, they kind of go, well, you know, I guess it's happening after all. Yeah, we don't really hear too much about black on Asian crimes. I don't exactly hear about that here in California. Pretty unusual. Oh, you know, well, well, you know, I don't know if you just, I don't know if you're throwing me a softball or not, but California is the hotbed of it. No, no, no. Well, here's where I was going to go with it. The Asian, okay. the Asian people that I've known where I'm, where I'm at, I have to admit they've been pretty racist by default. And I got to say, I've known various Oriental races out here where I'm at, and a lot of them do not like the black brothers or sisters out there. They're, they're really, well, uh, really well, racist. And, and another weird thing is even the Asian people that I've known, they, all, well, most of them have been really cruel to their pets. I know that sounds a little stereotypical, but it's actually something that I found with various Oriental races out here. And I'm in Southern okay, California. So by I have way. a totally different experience with people like that. Totally different. And so, but I'll tell you, and personal, both personally and professionally. But I will tell you, there's a story in the San Francisco paper headline, The Dirty Secret of San Francisco. 80% of the robberies in San Francisco are black on Asian. Amazing. 80%. South Sacramento, there, there's a, there's an epidemic of black on Asian robbery and home invasions in South Sacramento. And, 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 and so, so I'm not, so I would be very careful about being quick to call Asian people racist when they in fact are often victims of black violence and they're the ones, they, they know about it and they're the ones going, listen, we know that because we're Asians, we are targeted. Rochester, I did a big story in black, uh, for, for, don't make the black kids angry. Right. Rochester, New York. 5,000 Asian people from Nepal and Burma were sent to Rochester. Land in Rochester. Catholic Charities says, oh, I know where we can, I know where they can live. They can live in the ghetto. That's where housing is cheapest. Put them in the ghetto. Every single one of those 5,000 people were harassed, tortured, assaulted, beaten. Some were murdered. Took the paper five years to figure that out. And when they did, they did a big story about it. They spent half the story apologizing for noticing that there's an epidemic of black on Asian violence in Rochester among these immigrants. Oh, I believe it. So I don't disagree you know, so with you. I, I mean, if you, so I'm just telling you that mm -hmm. 
we can go on and on with this Asian stuff. Asians yeah, yeah, are no targets. Problem. I don't, I, you know, I don't believe that. Don't be quick to put a name on them without realizing that they are aware of which direction the violence is flowing. There is no Asian on black violence, by the way. Do you th- think there is? Do I think there's what? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Do you think there's Asian on black violence? I would have to imagine there there must be. I'm just speaking. Well, here's, I don't play the imagine game. I play the fact game. Right. And I can tell you right now, I've never heard of it before. Right. I, I was just speaking about what I see down here because I live in a prominently uh, Hispanic sort of uh, area where we don't exactly have too many black or, or Asian people around, to be completely honest with you. And Are you at liberty to disclose what city you're living in? Oh, no problem. I live in El Centro, California. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So... Mostly Hispanic people, and for the record, I am of multi-race. I consider myself a hybrid, just like a share out there. In other words, you're an American. An American, no doubt. That's the way I've always perceived myself. And some people, because they fall into the whole identity politics game and trap, I'm not someone who falls into any any of those things at all. And to speak further on Good that... Man. Yes, sir. And to speak further on that, just the other night... I actually saw a Hispanic uh, younger kid actually run and take beer from Rite Aid in the early morning uh, hours there. And, uh, you know, a part of me did want to go after him, but a part of me just thought, well, he's only stealing beer. It's not really worth chasing him down. But at, at that moment in time, I thought, how many other people witness crimes going down and they just sit there and they tape it with their cell phones? Well... I'm not overly worried. You know, when I do, when I do stories about people mm-hmm. stealing stuff, it's usually like a hundred black people that go into a convenience store and loot it. And that all happens. On video. I've seen that. And so, you know, I'm not, I don't really do much of the individual shoplifting, though I, though, though, you know, I'm it just exists. telling you every yeah. single crime against property and against people, crimes of theft, crimes of violence, black crime is wildly out of proportion. Every single one. So that's what I document. Understood. And so, and we t- so I talk about proportions, so I'm not worried about an Hispanic kid grabbing a six-pack of Budweiser. Somewhere. Of course. Yeah, that's that's another reason why I didn't do anything. I just thought, well, it's it's only beer. It's nothing like a purse or anything of that nature. And, okay, let me tell you a story mm-hmm. about New Orleans. This happened Go ahead. two nights ago in New Orleans. Somebody with your instincts, they were in the French Quarter and just leaving their hotel. There was a big party bus full of black people. They are yelling out the window, screaming, shouting, and all these nasty things at a homeless woman who was sitting on the street. So this four guys, these four people, two guys, two girls from Denver, they see this happening. They go up to the bus and they basically said, I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase here. Uh, excuse me, young people. Would you please stop mocking and yelling racial and sexual epithets at that homeless woman? It's not very nice. They came out and beat the hell out of him. They put him in the hospital with a broken jaw, missing teeth, totally screwed him up. Yikes. And so I've documented that, a ton of that, where, you know, what, what, you know, under, uh, well, I underlying a lot of this host- violence and crime, there is black on white hostility in this country that a lot of people simply do not acknowledge. White people don't acknowledge it. Black people talk about it very openly. Um, and, and and so if you're if you don't acknowledge that hostility and you decide you are going to go up to a bus full of young black people and tell them what to do, well, you better be prepared for the consequences on whatever level you want to deal with it. That's all. Well, that's true. I don't think I I don't think that would be a good move for me to try to do that. 
Not a good idea. And beat the piss out of this I, guy. Now the guy's yeah. in the hospital in Denver. There's no, doesn't have any teeth anymore. It's like, oh man, it's going to take a year to get this guy back together, put him back together again. And so all these people were harassing him, taunting him, laughing when he was being beaten. They arrested one guy today. One guy out of everybody on that party bus, one person was arrested. You know, if you're on a bus and you, and one of your fellows gets off the bus and really does something nasty and you don't turn him in, you don't drop the dime, you're part of it. So it wasn't that's just true. one person. There's 20 people in that beating. And that that's what I was referring to as people that just stand around with their cell phone without trying to stop any of the violent crimes that are being committed right in front of them. It's well, what we find, unusual. when I talk about black violence wildly out of proportion, it's not just numbers. We also document the sociopathic nature of it. And so in this party bus, when they were, when this was happening, people weren't just standing by and not doing anything. They were actively encouraging and laughing at it. Wow. So these weren't just, now this wasn't the Kitty Genovese. So I'm going to sit mm-hmm. here and watch this thing go by because I'm too scared to do anything. No, these were active participants laughing, laughing at this ridiculous level of violence being visited upon these kids from Denver. So they were instigating. The damage it was doing. So they were just instigating the whole event. Yeah, well, instigating event, that's probably, that's probably about the most polite way you can put it. Sure. And Colin, of course, in terms of controversial material, is it difficult in terms of publishing some of your books since they are deemed controversial? Well, you know, that's why, I mean, that's the, I, that's, that's, that's the idea, right? I mean, you want to write a book. That takes a popular idea and gives the other, it gives like maybe shows what, why that popular idea is not, is not what people think it is. So uh, I did have a little trouble getting, I mean, I'm, as a newspaper reporter, I, I, I published over, I, I, I received over 50 journalism awards from the Society of Professional Journalists, San Diego Press Club. So I didn't think I was the greatest writer in the world, but I thought there was a story there. And I thought if I tell this story, some publisher and agent are going to snap it up. Didn't happen. I mean, they, they, nobody wanted any part of it. Nobody wants to t- tell the other side of the story. Nobody wants to tell the story of the, ho- the greatest hoax of our lifetime, the, lo- the greatest lie of our lifetime, the hoax of black victimization. And so I finally found a publisher, WND Books. And they published White Girl Bleed a lot. And, uh, but, but at the same time, all, all along the, this is a little inside baseball for publishing, the publishing business here. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, I kept building my audience with email. I kept doing videos and things like this, making sure, making sure I have my Facebook and Twitter, Twitter and YouTube and all this other stuff. Word. So I was building my audience so people knew who I was. So I'm kind of, so I'm not sitting here really depending on a publisher right now. And so I'm, and so, um, so for my next book, I have publishers that are coming to me now and agents going, Hey, we want to represent you, but I, I'm not even sure why I need them anymore. Yeah. You are doing pretty well independently if, if I uh, say so myself. The only thing you really need a publisher for now is I mean, publishers to me are like bankers, right? It's like they only want to lend you money when pretty you much. don't need it. Yeah. And so a publisher is like, I don't need their PR. I don't need their audience thing. If they can get me into Barnes and Noble, which I was in there with white, white girl bleed a lot. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, Barnes, and, I mean, my audience finds me. They follow me. I mean, I get kicked off of YouTube. They follow me around. So, I mean, I have other email addresses. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Yeah, same so here. there's a lot of, op- yeah. I mean, there's a lot of good options. L- lots of pushback. And Colin, are you open to taking a phone call? I think there's someone. Okay. Of course. I think we have someone here. Uh, caller, you are online. What's going on? Uh, 
is Californian, and I've been listening to Mr. Flaherty for about a year now. Um, I have a sister who is a foreign exchange student for Chinese students, right. and she gets all the time. I, I might I might, might be a little bit past where your conversation is right now. That's okay. She gets okay. She gets questions all the time from uh, families back in China, um, where they live, what the demographics are, um, because they are fully aware of the violence that is um, um, exacted upon their uh, population here in the United States. And um, as a, a 53 year old uh, growing up in um, the Pasadena area, mm-hmm. I would see. Um, Little, you know, I'm biracial, and I would see white girls walking around with their backpack, and they accidentally bump into a young, um, a black girl, and get pushed several feet just for, and and would turn around and apologize, and get pushed several feet. There's a a, a definite, and it's been going on for, from at least from what I can tell from back in the 80s, a definite anger, um, for no, you know. N- n- for no affliction upon them by the individual they inflict the anger I'm glad uh, you, upon. I'm glad you mentioned the word anger because that seems to be the driving force and motivation for all these individuals who have been acting out a certain way. It all goes back to the home and the way they were brought up. Most of the time, the issue comes from a single-parent household. I would even go... I, uh, I, I would add that in light of the recent... Um, uh, allowance of behavior as a crime being the new um, entitlement i think it's it's more so that when you when when you have a child and they and they um they break a rule and you just tap them on the back of the hand they're more likely to repeat the same behavior yeah and so so my my thing is they're emboldened much more emboldened today than they were back when 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 i was growing when i was in high school or as a youth much more emboldened and um they know that and now that there's there's this change where they're they're considered teens and therefore because they they um committed an infraction as a teen um we can't you know we can't give them the cons- full consequence they deserve because they're a teen and then they just turn around and they do the same thing and then they tell their friends or they're now they can broadcast it online now online yeah. so uh, Everybody is is educating everybody else now that hey you can get away with this and you can get away with that and you can get away with this and so I think that um, if if we could with the newest administration that we have if we can pass down and give our law enforcement and give you know um, uh, stop tying the hands of of, of the uh, individuals in in the legal field and in law enforcement and be able to exact the punishment necessary for the for the offense that has been committed, then they'll stop doing it because then they'll start saying, well, we can't get away with this now. We can't get away with that now. Because the emboldenedness is so is so um, out of proportion of, of uh, in their mindset that they can just get away with it. Colin, how do you feel about that? I think I'm listening to one of the smartest people I've ever heard on the planet talk about this. It's a great caller. You, God, you, you're so you're so clear on this. It's a good call. You know what's weird is so for for ten last ten years the people running the Department of Education they would disagree with every single thing you just said everything. Do you imagine? And, and now we're living with the consequences of that. So good for you, caller. I mean, you're you're that was boy. I felt like I was you know I felt like that was fantastic. You ought to write a book. You should. Well, I I I I but but I'm dis I'm disheartened because I don't see um. 
you know, in, in, in the near future, any change. And I, unfortunately, it seems that there's going to have to be a lot more victims, unfortunate victims, um, before, um, you know, a change really occurs. And, you know, you, you've got, because you have so much deceit, denial, and delusion, which is one of my favorite things. <laughs> um, okay, you got to get a coffee it's, mug. It's, remember that. Oh, I remember it. I, oh, absolutely. Okay. But because we have so much deceit, denial, and delusion, um, I'm disheartened because I just don't, I, I just don't see that there's going to be any change with this mentality anytime soon. Okay, let me, let me, let me throw something in there. Don't be disheartened. Be energized. Be energized that your eyes are open. Be energized that at least for yourself and your family, you're not going to do anything stupid to put yourself in jeopardy. Maybe your mom or dad are around. Maybe you're smart enough to make sure they know what their lives are, could be like because they're going to be targets. Be energized that your friends are, you're going to make your, just your very existence is going to make your friends safer. And, and just your very existence is going to make reporters and public officials a little more wary when they start spreading this lie of black victimization because of people like you are going to be sitting there say, verbally or not, but just shaking their head going, no, everything you said is full of denial, deceit, and delusion. So I'm telling you something, hearing you, that energizes me. So don't be disheartened. I understand this enormous gulf now that exists between black people and white people. And for our purposes, white people are Asian people. Okay, they're the same. Enormous gulf, and I see it getting wider. You look at TV, radio, newspapers. They're all spreading the greatest hoax of our generation, the, the myth of black victimization. So we're fighting against that. So be energized. Be, you know, be, know that you're going to, you know, you can be a hero in your own life if you if you let people know about this. You know, th- th- that's interesting you say that because when I do bring, uh, when I do mention, I I, I go to a black um, um, hairstylist and you know people talk and everything, and I've gotten into, <laughs> um, you know, what could have been, um, a, you know, very. Um, uh, harsh verbal exchange, but fortunately was able to keep it in a calm exchange. But even, you know, I've heard individuals say, be, um, they're afraid, to, you know, when, when they see a police officer, just because of the hoax and because of the, 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 the media, you know, pounding it in their head that be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. And I've had these discussions and, and they're afraid just to be pulled over and, um, saying, you know, they see online, you know, you know, why are people saying all these horrible racist things? And I just said, how can that be? I grew up in a biracial environment. I'm 53 years old and, and my child, my, my nieces and then now my children have grown up, um, with, with various races of people and everything and people, you know, best friends. It has to be the, the constant pounding of race baiters. Um, they're, 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 they're propagating a, a ghost that doesn't exist. But people are believing it and they're infiltrating online and they're, they're showing, you know, maybe one, one slur somebody may have made. And because everybody's retweeting it or resending it out, people, she, she, this one lady actually told me, she goes, you should see the hate that I see online. And I said, that cannot be, I just, I just cannot believe that's possible. I was born in an era. Um, where, you know, my, my parents could, my mother couldn't even show that she was married to a black man. She couldn't take her pictures of her children to work to show. And, and today, what look, you know, you see, you, you, you know, you see as we all are, mutts everywhere. And, um, but these people, people are believing this. The, the propaganda is, is, seems to be so success, you know, doing its job. 
that it's like, you know, the, I'm just trying to uh, think of a, a effective counter propaganda that we can admit and put out okay, there. Let, let, okay, to, so here, here's, let me let me let me let me ask, make a suggestion. It's when you're talking to somebody who's giving you the party line that black people are relentless victims. I think I think there's no there's no profit in arguing with them, but there is profit in just asking them questions because the more they have to explain it, the sooner their little world comes crashing down because it's all built on fairy tales. So when you hear about you know cops and you go, I mean you might even say something like, hey, so I, I understand you know I mean a, a black person is a thousand times more likely to be killed by a black person than by a cop. Is that true? Then why are you afraid of cops? So anyway, just just a good point. Yeah, good point. You know exactly, but a lot of times you're dealing with people who are who are um, riding on emotion, and they you can't even use logic. Emotion, that's very (laughs) true. That's another thing. A lot of people nowadays are just overly emotion, emotional rather, and that's not really how men are supposed to be in America. That you're supposed to uh, be as objective and emotionless as you can be, and be logical. And being emotional is, is just not what a man is supposed to be, in my opinion, of course. You know, uh, you, you know, one of the things I find that really, one of the triggers that I find in my work is when I talk about mass shooters. Ah, another subject so, we'll definitely get into. Go ahead, Colin. And so the New York Times, I got this out of the New York Times, three quarters of mass shooters in America are black. And so whenever I'm doing my stories, that somebody always comes in, lots of comments on my stories, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Colin, what about those mass shooters? They're all white. No, they're all black. The three quarters are black. And so, and, I, and, and, you know, and Jack, a couple of weeks ago, I made, it's like one a day, mass shooters, black mass shooters. If I name them, you know, I get a news clip and a town. I said, listen, these are 22 things that happened in the last three weeks. Now show me the white mass shooters, match them up for me. And, so those are usually, we have facts. Those are usually, the more uh, we stick to facts and the less we dive into religion, history, sociology, psychology, and all these things, just stay with facts. Like this happened, that happened, this happened, that happened. That's where we're strong. What Was this individual bringing up school shootings? Is that what he meant? He or she, they mean a lot of things. What mm-hmm. they mean is that white people are the devils that are causing all the evil on the planet and and. Whatever black people do, white people do the same and more when the opposite, when that is simply not true. Well, if I may interject also too, the mentality, the mentality is also because, um, because the, uh, the country is run by white people. The reason why you don't see videos is because they're successfully omitting them, omitting these videos and all this information and propaganda so that we can focus on the black people are the ones who are being the victims. You know, it's amazing because what, what you said is true. I mean, because, I mean, when you talk to these people and you let them talk, people who believe in this hoax of black victimization, they'll tell you that the only reason more black people are stopped, arrested, tried, convicted, sent to prison is because of over-policing. And, and what that means to me is you have a whole bunch of cops out there that see white people killing, raping, robbing, doing all this stuff, but they're ignoring it. They're letting it slide. And if that's the case, okay, then show me the videos, show me the victims, show me the 911 calls. I mean, that, I mean, they don't exist. It's just part of a fairy tale that these guys just continually concoct based on their emotions, as our host so rightfully said. And so we're not going to combat emotions with other emotions. We're going to combat emotion with fact, with facts, fact, right. fact. 
And speaking of which, Colin, there was just another shooting not long ago in Illinois, and the shooter was black. I see your Illinois shooting, and I'll raise you your Jacksonville shooting. Yesterday, four people in a park shot. Did you hear about it? No, not at all. No. No. Every day. It's pretty amazing. There's a, there's a shooting oh, there you to a park, a basketball court, kills two people, shoots four. Jacksonville happened two days ago. Yeah, that didn't, Sorry, make, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it. it's okay. It didn't make any news out here. Yeah, well, it happened. It ha- you know, but it did happen. One in Atlanta. This is happens every day. It's amazing. I mean, you know, you go into the ghetto or somewhere like that. Three people get shot. Seven people get shot at a bar. Nine people get shot at a party. Six people get shot at a rap concert. I mean, this is happening every day. It, it really is. It, it is really insane that uh, shootings, mass shootings, are like the new normal now. And, and 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 if it doesn't fit the narrative, nobody wants to talk about it. And when you tell them what the facts are, the New York Times they wrote the story 18 months ago about, and you could tell the uh, the pain they went through because they were seeing all these conflicting stories about who's doing these mass shootings, like Newsweek, Mother Jones, and Salon. They all basically define these mass shootings so narrowly, and they said, oh yeah, that's a white thing. So New York Times get in there. They define a mass shooting as somebody who shot three or more people. They found 75% are black people. But you could tell as they went through it, they're going, oh, my God, we're surprised at the result. And it's very surprising, and we hate to even report it, but they reported it. And once you start looking at – once you just start looking at what is happening and not listening to people rattle on about sociology, history, and statistics that they don't know anything Mm -hmm. about, the world will change, and the way you look at it will change as well. Definitely. From conversations I've had with various law enforcement officers from all sorts of different um, branches, high and low, uh, they definitely usually tell me statistics all the time. And uh, they're not very good for some people out there who are over, overly emotional. And well, here's the, here's the drill with statistics. We know that black, black crime versus white crime is wildly out of proportion. We know that black on white crime is like a hundred or even a thousand times greater than white on black crime, especially violent crime. But as bad as those numbers are, the real numbers are even worse because of stitches for snitches, witness intimidation. <laughs> yes. Because of, I mean, in Baltimore, they, in all these big cities now, they have district attorneys. They talk about we're going to stop the cradle to prison pipeline. We're going to arrest fewer black people and and then there's something called Bronx juries, where black juries tend not to convict black defendants. Um, so there's all these things that really make this crime thing way, way worse than the numbers suggest. Amazing. And Colin, have you ever been physically assaulted or received de- uh, death threats over any of your material? Well, I get threatened every day, but for some reason, no one ever does anything about it. I don't know. I can't imagine why. Hmm. I, I would, well, because I... Ahead. Excuse me. Because Mr. Flowery receives training from his wonderful law enforcement friends, which I have seen. So he, he's smart and he makes sure that he has situational awareness and he's... You think that has you know, something to do um, with it, the fact that I'm extremely well... That could be. I hadn't thought about that. So, no, you, I think that you, you, you are <laughs> you're aware of your surroundings. <laughs> but I also want to ask you, though, since we have a new administration, um, Colin, do you, have you noticed, are you... Um, you know, are you seeing that there might be a positive change with some change like what's happened in Florida, the pipeline, which you were mentioning, the pipeline to prison type of mentality um, and policies such as that were implemented by Obama that have been bold in the, this, this, uh, this crime that is occurring? So, yes and no. The Department of Education. So my whole question for Trump when he came in and was, are you going to is he going to ignore it, trim it back or pull it out by the roots? 
I was especially looking at the Department of Education because they're the ones who put out a mandate to tell every teacher in America that, you know, if you have a, if your school has a disparity between white students being suspended and black students being suspended or expelled or, or performance in school, there's only one reason for that. And that is, that is uh, white racism. I mean, that was the law of the land for 10 years, eight from Obama to, uh, to uh, Trump. And they just kind of got around to pulling that out by the roots a few months ago. So that's a, that's a positive. But uh, a few weeks ago, Trump made a big deal about signing this federal criminal justice reform thing. I think he called it, what did he call it? The Second Chance Act or something like that. And the underpinning of that is that the only reason there's a whole bunch of black people in jail, in prison, way more than white people, way, on every scale, is because of white racism. So there's Trump signing this thing and, you know, surrounded by Jared Kushner. I mean, not, I mean, uh, I mean, Van Jones and Jared Kushner. Van Jones, right. And, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how anybody could look at that and say, you no, know, our, our criminal justice system is, is racist when there's so much black violence and criminality so wildly out of proportion. You know, it's like every, and so that's one of the, that's another one of my catchphrases. It's like, now crime is the new black entitlement. Mm. So it's a mixed mm-hmm. bag. And so I'm kind of waiting out, you know, the, you know, for our caller, I'm also looking, paying close attention. Have you been following this lawsuit at Harvard? Yes. The Asian students suing Harvard? Yes, yes. And so I there's a lot that. of battles going on a lot of fronts. And let's see if we can reverse some of these things and, you know, get people just to, you know. But as long as we play this identity politics, this racial identity politics, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't see how we can make that much progress on this. Right. I did, I did come across that article as well uh, just the other day. Very interesting to see that. So it's 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 yeah, that, interesting. That, you know, the Democrats are determined to keep this racial identity thing going. I'm glad you. I'm, I'm glad but you. I, um, see, I, but I try not to make my stuff too partisan. I like Trump, but I'm kind of like I feel like I'm kind of like Ann Coulter. It's like <laughs> I like him, but on my thing. I'm just going to look at him to see if he does the right thing or the wrong thing, and and doesn't. You know, I'm just going to say what I see. It's funny you mentioned Ann Coulter because she's been very vocal against Donald Trump lately. Well, you know, she's asking the question. She's, she, 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 I mean, what's she doing? She's saying, why don't we have a wall? Right. Why don't, why'd you wait two years? Why didn't you do this? Why did you, you know, dilly dally around? Those are valid questions. And so I'm not really, you know, I listen, I've been around a lot of politicians in my life, a lot. I've worked for a lot of them. So I'm not, I'm, I kind of stopped falling in love with them a long time ago. And, I just want to know what they're going to do. I think Ann Coulter has gone through the same thing. She doesn't really care. If, you know, she just wants to know what Trump is doing on this wall thing. Well, she's the one. Well, let's face it. It was. It's not as. It's not as. You know. It's not as. Uh, it's not as shining hour, is it? Understood. And her only. Her only uh, policy was the whole wall. That's the only thing that she was really supporting in terms of Donald Donald Trump's uh, campaign here. And she had called him an idiot. I thought that was kind of um, surprising. Since well, she, you know, she was so the first I, person putting over I don't, I don't so know much. how much good it does that, but that's her. I mean, yeah, that's her stuff. Me, yeah. you know, she's the most, you know, she's one of the best people in the whole dang country. So I'm sorry that she and Trump had a falling out. I'm not sorry she's drawing attention to this. I mean, it's like we have anywhere between 10 and 40 million people, illegal aliens in this country. It's like, is that not an emergency? I don't know what it is if that's not. Yeah, that's a lot of people. And of course, you brought up the Democrats. And, oh, excuse me. Oh, Can I ahead. interject on that? Go ahead. Go um, ahead. 
my, we, uh, I'm a native California, but I have been in and out, um, you know, mil- as a military family. And, uh, I had uh, three children. And when we came back to California, um, in sixth grade, we had to wait two weeks before my children, um, after the year, the school year just had already started. We had to wait two, two weeks for my children to get in to wait for other students to move, move out, um, for reasons, um, because there were no uh, no open seats in any um, in in the sixth grade class that they were in, in in all the classes available or that were existing. What, what city? What and, city were you in? This is in Imperial Beach. I'm pretty and, close and, to and I, know, to, I know the come, area well. Come, yeah, and come to find out, there were a lot of students driving over from the border, going to school, likely using addresses that were here, but they were living over in Tijuana. Correct. Yeah. But my three three American-born children with a father serving in the military had to wait two weeks before they could get into get into school to wait for other American kids to move to other locations to have availability for them to get into get into school. So it has an impact. It is having an impact on and uh, to the small people. In, in, in areas people don't even think or realize, you walk into a local Walmart and you literally think uh, you are in, and you're not in, you're in the United States. You yeah, know? So I lived and, in San Diego for 35 years. So I, I used mm-hmm. to cover the border. I used to go to Tijuana for San Diego, the San Diego Business Journal. But even the 35, all the time I was out there and all the, keep my ears open, it would never occur to me that the experience that people in San Diego have with Hispanics is the same as people in chocolate cities have with black people. It's not the same. When you were in Walmart, no, did you feel any hostility? Did you see any like fights? Did you see any threats? Did you feel when you were in, coming from the Hispanics? That's more no, a kind of no, a par no, for the course no. thing for a white person when they, when they're, when they're in a black environment. Yeah. When you're, when you're in Chicago and, and white, that's a whole different you know, ballgame. My daughter was going to school on the East Coast um, in New Jersey, and she was uh, going to ride um, uh, the train to uh, to meet up with a, a church group in, in New York for do some touring. And I was so nervous. I was so because she's you know she's she's she, this is not her her home ground for one, and two she, it was her first time going on a subway or a train. And I literally had her find a, 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 a woman with her son and, and just hang out with them and help them, have them help her direct her to where she needed to go and get off. I was so, because I, I was so concerned, um, of her safety. You know, uh, um, cause my daughter looked like the young lady of an article or that Colin had uh, covered one time about the young lady in Chicago who was having a, uh, you know, mental health, um, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. emergency. And then they, re- they arrested her, took her to, you know, to jail and then released her in the worst neighborhood possible. And she then is now basically, I guess, a vegetable in result of her injuries that, that, um, occurred from her attack. And, and it's, I, you know, I'm very vigilant with with my with my um, uh, my children as young adults, where they are, um, you know, um, their surroundings, the environment, the demographics, everything, and and to act accordingly and and stay in areas to stay away from in result because you can actually aid in your own um, um, attacks, but just by obliviously walking uh, into an environment or area you shouldn't be in. You know, I, 
We've done, we, we've done a lot of videos and I'm probably a little bit harder on these parents than I should be. I just did this video the other day. A mom was crying that her son was a victim of black violence in the classroom on video. And she's going, Oh, how did this happen? I didn't have any idea. Well, it was your, so if you're, that mom had your sense to be more vigilant, to keep her eyes and ears and heart open to what's really happening in their children's lives, she could have saved her son the, the, the beating and humiliation he was exposed to for months. And so good for you. I mean, as a parent, you only have one job. Protect your kids. So good for you for being aware of that. Yeah. Hey, you ought to well, have this lady on your show. I know, right? A guest on your show. She I know, right? Going on. Definitely. I need to get her well, on the program. Multiracial, you know, city and town, and I'm a multiracial family, and I have a sister ten years older who uh, was is completely Caucasian, and this happened to her every day. She would be, um, you know, bullied uh, by black girls, and she would be, you know, uh, she was just constantly being accosted. And finally, one day, she um, she she wasn't very high, uh, very tall in stature. This was in a, a primary school. And um, she finally turned around, balled up her fist, turned around, and cold-cocked the individual um, and then proceeded to pound her head into the curb <laughs> oh because of the built-up the built up, uh, frustration and, um, um, and the, from, from all the previous attacks and, and, and in bullying that she received. But she taught us. Um, that, you know, we are not to, uh, one, um, w- we better come back worse than the person who, who, you know, has offended us, um, or assaulted us, but we are not to stand by and watch somebody else be assaulted as well. And we, and if hey, she, let me heard about- Let me ask you a question. What did, what did your parents know about your sister being targeted by the black students in that school? What did they know? You know, I'm not sure what they knew that I'm, she's 10 years older than me and, um, I don't, my mom was, was, I think, kind of oblivious to that because she was, you know, born in Colorado, raised in Colorado, so that she wasn't exposed to a lot of black people. My father, on the other hand, was raised in, you know, the South and then came to, you know, California. So I'm not sure what their, I think, I'm not sure what the reaction is. My, the, reason my, I I ask is because, my the reason I ask is because a lot of parents, especially back in that day, they just didn't know what was going on. They didn't know. And now they know. Now they not at least know. And so yeah, there's no more excuse. parents there's... know. Which is great now nowadays that everyone has a cell phone which gives everyone the ability to actually see what went on. But you now know, you I, have I, I get I get what your sister did. I get that. That when somebody bullies you, you have to stand up to them. But this is but what we're what I document is something beyond that. What I document is long term widespread hostility and abuse in schools directed at students, teachers, neighbors, staff. And it's a black thing in schools. And it's not just a question well, of standing up to bullies. It's really a question of a parent saying, why am I sending my kid to school there? That's a, that's like a, it's like a crazy house. It's a violent, dangerous, crazy house. And it's child abuse to put your kid in that environment. There's a mentality out there and it's, and it's growing and it's, and it's part of the indoctrination, especially with white people where they're being taught you, um, this is just how it is. And you, you, you are, um, you have, you are responsible for the sins of your fathers. And so therefore, whatever happens upon you, you get with this, what you get. And, and you can't complain and you, um, otherwise you're a racist. Um, they, they, many people believe that it's, if any violence happens upon them by a person of color or a black person, it's, they just suck it up. 
that's the attitude I'm hearing and that's what I'm seeing and that's, and it's sad and, and I won't tolerate that and I won't allow my, my children to tolerate that kind of attitude. You know, you're a victim, well, when, you're a victim, we, doesn't matter who is. When we talk about black violence directed at white people, there's always three responses. One, didn't happen. Well, videos removed that. Two, white people do it too. That's a fairy tale. But the third one is what you talk about, which is white people deserve it. And so, like, why did, you know, you ask somebody, why did, like, the, I, at the beginning of the show, I talked about these two husbands, two, in the last couple of days, two different parts of the country, both killed by black people. And you go, why did that happen? Well, Colin, what about in 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue? I mean, really, that's why these white guys had to die because of the sins of something that happened 4,000, 4 million, 4 billion years ago. Well, guess what? I don't buy that. And that's still a narrative. Well, I don't buy that, that's still a narrative that is commonly pushed around. And that gets everyone all crazy and violent. Yeah, no, we're sitting here. I mean, you see it on CNN, MSNBC, NPR, all the daily newspapers. You see it on the editorial pages. It's like, well, you know, back in 1945, that guy couldn't get on a train. That's why black people today are chanting in the streets, what do you want, dead cops? When do we want them now? Yeah, that, that's... Good Lord, where do these insane people with their insane excuses come from? Yeah, that's too much. But I, I agree with you completely that that's the sort of, um, that, that's the sort of narrative that does get kicked around a lot. And it doesn't help that there are politicians out there who push that same violent narrative on people that aren't very knowledgeable. It's dangerous. You know, and we, and we kind of, you know, this might be a good, kind of like, good, good way to segue into this big story happening now, this Jesse Smollett yes, story. we'll get into that right now. And caller, I want to thank you tremendously for uh, calling in with all that great information. Good stuff. You're very welcome, and thank you for having Colin on your show. No problem. Hey, you want to write? Hey, you want to write a book? You're good. That was a great call. <laughs> well, thank you for what you do. Appreciate it, and have a good evening. Okay, mahalo. And there she goes. That was a great call there, Colin. Glad she called in. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Yeah, what, a, what a strong, what a, a strong you know, woman. That's the kind of people I expect to meet in this country. Strong people, clear vision. Me too. People who know right from wrong. They don't have these mealy-minded, crazy things about excuses for everybody's behavior. If you clunk somebody over the head, you're going to jail. I don't care. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with that. Understood. And let, let's get into the whole issue with uh, the actor Jesse Smollett. I guess is is his name. The, yeah, I just learned how to pronounce it the other night, so I'm, I'm like Smollett? ahead of the game. It's Jesse Smollett. Smollett. Okay, so he has a little flair in there, <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. And I must ask you about the latest mishaps of confused actor Jesse Smollett from the show Empire. Allegedly and apparently he was a victim of a hate crime where two men wearing MAGA hats assaulted and attempted to lynch him. Now, Colin, when I first heard the story... I didn't know anything about these two individuals. As soon as I heard they tried to lynch him, I thought, well, this isn't anywhere close to Mexico, and none of these people have any ties to the cartel. So I thought that was bullshit right away. Well, I think, you know, so a lot of people listening to this probably have seen some of the details that this whole story is falling apart. But I think what I, what I find most interesting about these stories, these hoaxes that we see, oh, I document all the time. What I find most interesting is it really exposes how eager reporters and public officials are to believe the greatest lie of our generation, the hoax of black victimization, without a single dot of proof. Now we're now the latest news out of Drudge just a few minutes ago is the, the two guys, the, the two brothers from Nigeria. Right. They, ha- they arrested him and they let him go. 
they are turn they they are apparently they are going to be witnesses against this guy. Apparently they're saying Jesse Smollett hired them to stage this beating, this lynching. <laughs> yes. And I mean it's crazy. It's a false I mean, flag. How many people? How many of these? I mean, they even bullied Donald Trump into saying into giving that story credibility. Do you remember a couple of days ago he goes, "Oh yeah, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody." I mean, all the senators, all the congressmen, all the talking heads, they just took it hook, line, and sinker. They really Not did. Not one person said, hey, wait a minute. Don't you guys, don't you guys know that these hoaxes are really common now? So why would you believe it without one bit of proof? Yeah, it's hard so to that, believe. That's the lesson there. Right. And it was hard to believe these two individuals. Of course, one of them had done some time, uh, allegedly, or apparently rather, and they are both actors and they knew of each other. So that's how all these other little facts that came out, you sort of already knew this was just a false flag. Well, I mean, so, you know, my, I, so I made my bones in this planet by being a reporter. And so my whole thing is I just want to see what's true and false, not good and bad, true and false. But really that's, that the, so my, when I heard about the story, I saw the red flags as well, but I just, I just, I just needed somebody to convince me it happened. But instead of us getting closer to people convincing me it happened, we kept going backwards to in the direction of a hoax. I mean, the next day he, when he came out, the next day after this thing, and he said, "Yeah, this is happening all over the country." What? You know? Yeah, yeah, right. White people are roaming the country, beating up black people. Can you give me an example, please? I beg of you. And there's ne- and there's always crickets. And then you, but then you say, okay, how about example the other example? And it's like, man, I got hundreds of those. Indeed. But you're, you're sitting there perpetuating the myth, the hoax. So that's what we do. That's what we're doing right now. It's what I do on my podcast, my videos, my books. Yeah, I, I got to mention really so quickly, many- Colin, that watching some of your videos, I'm always astounded by the video quality. It's so HD. I'm, I'm impressed by the quality. Oh, thanks, thanks. You know, it's really good. It's uh, uh, the, 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 I think the the world we so in my world. We're, we're looking at this mountain of denial, deceit, and delusion, right? Love that. And, and it's really a mountain and everybody's just piling on every day. And so my thing is the only way we're going to bring this mountain down is with facts, but we need to get a lot of them out. So I tried to do a couple of videos a day. It's boom, 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 boom. Just get them out. Find people send me so much stuff. I could do a hundred more videos a day. Um, but, but I'm just trying to hit this mountain of denial, deceit, and delusion. We ought to have this ought to be like the Groucho Marx show. Whenever any, ever anybody says that, the duck comes down and somebody wins a prize. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. And and Colin, I got to bring this up now. Now that I think this is a great time to do it. Last year you were on the AA show, and you got into it with Ron Bennington. That was actually a very very interesting exchange that you two had. And at one point it was headed towards a boxing match. And uh, Colin, I got to tell you. I like Ron and all that, but in a boxing match, you got cardio and reach going for you, and Ron is incredibly out of shape. The fight wouldn't have gone well for him, in my honest opinion, Colin. Well, that's what I told him on the air. I know. Here's the thing. Do you remember, were you watching that show? I was watching. A lot of people probably just saw the segment on YouTube. Oh, no, I I watched the whole thing live as, as it was going on. And, you know, I was very curious since that that incident, has anyone from Compound Media contacted you at all or anyone from Ron's camp for, for anything? Well, here's the weird thing. Go ahead. About, you, you, you might, I want to answer, can I answer that question in about 20 seconds? Go ahead. Because let's, do you remember what they were talking about when I came on the air? 
Hmm. I know he was on there before you got on, and they were just joking around. Just What were they joking about? Hmm. What were they joking around about? They had a picture of the hosts. They had a picture of fifth grade. Uh, oh, the trans kid. Uh, uh, What's that? The transsexual kid or, or the. No, they had a picture of their, like a fifth class of fifth graders from one, from when they were in fifth grade and they were looking at oh, the Oh, they girls were looking at the, the and young, contemplating yeah, how big their her, tits were the at breasts. the time. Yeah, Anthony was, was making comments about a younger, uh, girl just developing her, her breast on, on the show and he was openly talking about that. I was actually, Pretty astounded. I, I was actually pretty uh, taken back uh, by Anthony throughout the whole thing. He pretty much turned soft during that whole fight. And so I was uncomfortable. So, you know, I was just sitting there in the green room. You know, you wait to go on going, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go in there and pretend like I didn't hear any of this. I was very uncomfortable with that. I don't blame you, man. I'm not was... a prude, but I'm not going to sit there. I'm not going to sit there and look at pictures of 11-year-old girls and have discussions about how big their tits are. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to do that. Yeah, that was a little so I also knew this. weird. I also knew when I went in there that Ro- I knew I knew who Bennington was, but my guess was he did not know who I was. Who you were, right. That's what I, I felt. So, so my attitude was, listen, I am not going to let this clown, I'm not going to be the butt of his jokes. If I see anything weird coming from him to me when I start talking about my work and my life, I am going to, I'm going to explain the facts of life to him. And that's exactly what I did. I called him on it. I told him he didn't, he was a good example of what we're talking about. Right. People who don't know what's going on. He's in denial. Then that's he true. Pushed back. I pushed back. I actually thought there was going to be a fist fight. And so here's, here's <laughs> the weird thing. I didn't really know Bennington or his audience or anything. I've probably gotten a thousand emails and comments from his audience, every one of them. But, but here's the weird thing. Every single one contains gay pornography it's not like they're just calling up not like they're sending me a piece of mail going hey colin i don't like the way you treated my friend ron bennington no they send me these videos you know like these gifts that are like six seconds long very explicit <laughs> very gay and they basically some some people will like photoshop my picture yes, into it yes you gotta expect that yeah you gotta expect that from that audience and um again i was a little bit taken back by anthony cumia and some of the things he was saying on his show before he brought you on, and it seems like a lot of entertainers out there, they have the strange uh, tranny fixation. I'm not sure why, but they're into the trannies. Well, I, I'm not. I don't recall the trannies being part of that. Maybe it was, but I was like, you know, I, my attitude was like, oh man, what am I doing here? But I, but Anthony Cumia, I consider him a big fan, a big supporter, a big friend. I didn't have any idea. But, you know, when I got out, when I got out there, they continued the discussion and they kind of wanted me to participate in it, like the sexual merits and demerits of all these girls that are basically 11 years old. That, I, didn't, I wasn't going to do that, that under was any circumstances. I'm sorry. Uh, that was shocking. I, you know, I, I even almost want to apologize to you because that was actually pretty, pretty goddamn bizarre. It was, it was weird, wasn't it? It really, yeah, it really was. I mean, I kind of stopped subscribing last year to a show. Just because I was a little bit weirded out after all sorts of things that I later soon found out to be, uh, well, I can't exactly say what accusations, but a lot of those things turned out to be somewhat true. It was very unusual, to say the least. And uh, since that happened, Colin, has Anthony Cumia contacted you? No, you know, and I'm, I'm actually a little surprised at that. Because there was an enormous interest 
in Ron and me getting back on that show like within a couple weeks, right? Right. Or at least right. enormous interest in me going back there and talking about what was going on. I thought, yeah, this is a no-brainer. I'll go back on any time. <laughs> yes. And uh, but no, it never happened. So you know, I wasn't worried about it one way or the other. But I do, and I I did, and I do have real enormous amount of respect for Anthony Cumia on a personal level. And I, you know, I didn't I didn't want to do anything to 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 damage that. I respect. At the same time, yeah, I don't I, let you know. At the same time, I don't have any problem establishing my boundaries and saying, you know, you cannot come in that boundary. Understood. And definitely, I do have a lot of respect for Anthony. But during the whole thing, again, he turned completely soft during that whole exchange. I was okay. Completely here's, what I, here's what I guessed. Mm-hmm. My guess was that he and Ron Bennington were very old buddies, they are. buddies, whatever yeah, yeah. buddies. Yeah, and that's what I picked up. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to ask Anthony to throw away his lifetime buddy just to do, you know, just to party with good old Colin. Sure. But at the same time, again, I didn't, I didn't ask him that, but I wasn't going to let anybody, I wasn't going to sit there and just be the butt of their jokes. No, 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 no. I'm glad going to happen. I'm glad you didn't back. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't back down, Colin. You know, I mean, and this, and so when I, when you write about violence and when, I mean, when I document this violence and denial, I mean, this is right the tip of the spear of people who are very violent, who get very unhappy with me. And so that doesn't bother me. And so sitting next to Rob Bennington, that doesn't bother me either. I, and I really so, enjoyed, actually, I really enjoyed your, your guys' exchange. I was hoping there would be a part two of that. I thought there was too. I, I would love that. I mean, I mean, isn't, isn't, I mean, isn't the environment that Anthony Cumia is in the same as the one you're in and I'm in, which is everybody wants to get some eyeballs on their material exactly and i don't know why you know i don't i mean i don't know why you would reject that but you know what i never asked i didn't care but i still like all the people i knew over there i, I like Andy. right i still like him even though he tucked it tucked his tail a little bit there but that's okay i still respect him a great deal a great broadcaster no doubt not trying to disparage that whatsoever the guy uh, ron bennington was correct though when he said that anthony was one of the funniest people in america I believe that to be true, but not so much anymore. Not not in today's climate. Well, He's not at that level, in my opinion. Just my opinion. Yeah. You know, well, here's the thing. I, I I can believe that Anthony peaked in his comedic comedy thing, but I also know he, he's doing a comedy thing. But I also know he wants to branch out a little more. And He's that trying. Was Bennington's point, right? Yeah. Which is, oh man, you got to go back to comedy. When you're doing that two or three hours a day, you know what happens? You just get guys on there that say stupid stuff and everybody just gives a forced laugh. Yeah, that's That's kind of of what it's now like now that. Is there anything really funny on there? Well, he has that Dave Landau guy who I I don't think is funny at all. Once they lost Artie, I just completely lost interest on the whole program. Uh, Dave Landau, the the second mic there, he's kind of like Janine Garofalo. He has the same kind of delivery and sort of style, and I just think uh, yuck, in my opinion. I, I'm not impressed by that. Well, I wish him all the best. Me too. Um, Me too. Uh, but but you know, I but it's hard. I mean, it's hard to do. I don't know. It's hard to do that to, that stuff for two it hours. It is hard. Just, That's but, true, though. I I do take that for consideration that they are on uh, multiple times during the week. So you that's know. why you got to break it up. You know, that's what I was doing there. I wasn't supposed. I would listen. People tell me when I write. People tell me that. I mean, Jack Cashel said, next to Mark Stein, nobody can write about these really difficult topics with more humor and lightness than I do. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm supposed to be the sad sack uh-huh. compared to these comic geniuses right. sitting up in New York. No, I'm not going to buy that. But at the same time, you know, I wasn't there. I, I wasn't there to do a stand-up act. Exactly. 
And again, and, you know, so you did a great job, and I liked that that the whole video so much that I actually went and sent a link to my father, and he watched the whole thing, and, and he became a big Colin Flaherty fan after that. Oh no, kidding! Uh, he loved okay. it. I'm not lying. He he really loved it. He, he thought it was hilarious. Dear old dad, I like the cut of your jib, Mister, <laughs> wherever you are right now, Joe. Yes. Joe, I like the cut of your jib, Joe. <laughs> he actually listens every now and then uh, to the show, so he'll he'll definitely listen to this. And okay, now fair, turnabout is fair play. Tell us about Joe. Well, Joe, my father. You know, I've never really mentioned this on the air before, but he has worked in law enforcement before. That's one fact I've never really revealed here on on the program at all. In other words, he happens to know exactly what is going on when we talk about this topic. One hundred percent. So, you know, it's weird. Let me, I want to hear about your dad, but let me interject one thing. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, so when my YouTube channel, when my YouTube channel was up, I mean, I was getting 12 million views a month, a lot. So I've gotten like over 125 million views on my videos over the last couple of years. I've never, so I talk about cops and teachers. I'm always challenging people. It's like, if I'm wrong, if these chocolate schools are not a mess and you're a teacher in these schools, let me know. If I'm wrong and these chocolate cities are not a mess and you're a cop and you moved your family in there, let me know. No one's ever letting me know. Interesting. I'm never getting even an ounce of pushback on the material. I'm sorry. So your dad was a law enforcement. Does that mean cop? Yeah. He, ge- district mm-hmm. attorney? No, he was a cop. You're liberty to say what city he uh, he walked the beat in? Yeah, out here where I'm at now. In the, South Slide Pro? Uh-huh, he was out here. He was a sheriff for a very, very long time, too. And he worked for the state. And now he's doing other things in, uh, related to law enforcement that I can't exactly uh, mention here, but definitely he was out in the street. He knows exactly what's been going on for the longest time, and he's been to multiple cities. And the problem, the problems are always pretty much the same in, in these neighborhoods. That's the polite answer. Everybody, you know, it's amazing the hostility cops are getting every day. Oh, and every, it's real. You know, it's Every real. encounter a cop has with a black person always includes the following sentence. You only stop me. You're only hassling me. You're only arresting me because I am black. That's true. And, you know, these people, as our caller so aptly put it during the last segment, there's a lot of people that are being emboldened and encouraged by what they see on television when they hear about these fairy tales that people, that people tell. Agreed. And since you brought up your YouTube channel, um, it got me thinking a lot of your material again could be deemed controversial. So I always kind of feel like you're, you're kind of on a slippery slope with some of the, the topics that you discuss on your show because of YouTube and how they have their own agenda. And me and you are not a part of it, Colin. Well, you know, that's a plain fact. Right. You know, it's weird that YouTube, they have over 7,500 people that work for YouTube and Google, same company. Who, who are, who monitor the channels. And, you know, most of the stuff that happens on YouTube happens because somebody sends in a complaint. And so when they, when I do videos, there's nothing in there that's hateful or full of obscenity or vulgarity. We don't do that. What we do do is tell the truth and speak plainly. But the, what, the, 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 the way they get you is to say you violated community standards. Correct. Well, what's a community standard? The community standard is if somebody sends in a complaint, that by definition is a violation of community standards. And so it's weird that you send these complaints in, they all get funneled around, around the world. These things are happening around the world. So, you know, maybe somebody in a village in India 
is sitting there reading this thing going, Colin Flaherty's a bad person. Let's kick him off YouTube. Boom. That's the way, that's the way it works. We got people around the world telling Americans what we can and cannot say on YouTube. Does that sound strange to you? It sounds like a communist sort of regime. It's weird. It really is weird because I, um, matter of fact, we are on my backup channel now because I am currently under suspension for, uh, you know, for community guideline strike with a previous guest who was after a very controversial topic himself. And even those videos I had with him, they were locked and they were still hit by YouTube and taken down. And so, I mean, all of us have to decide. I mean, I, I had to decide. At some point, you are going to have to decide yeah. whether you are going to tell the truth the best way you know how or whether you are going to start pulling punches. So I decided I was I was not going to pull punches. That means I my you know, I got kicked. I've been kicked off YouTube five times. I didn't want to make I just <laughs> didn't I didn't want to I just didn't want to constantly rebuild my audience. Yeah. So I, I went over to Minds.com slash Colin Flaherty. I post them there, post them on Facebook, post them on Twitter. But and and the great thing is a lot of people I encourage them to do this. They grab my videos and they put them up on YouTube. Mm. So my, I'm still all over YouTube, but just in different ways. Yeah, that that's also works out pretty pretty nicely. And on a side note, I wanted to ask you about another controversial figure, uh, Alex Jones. How do you feel about Alex Jones and just his whole uh, gimmick? Okay, so I've been on the Alex Jones show. Yeah, a couple times. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I'm. I, I can't say I'm a listener, but I remember I was on there one time and Alex Jones was going through some conspiracy theory, which is the opposite of what I do, right? And right. so he asked, he, so his first question to me kind of like invited me to participate in this conspiratorial world of his. And I kind of put my hand up and I said, I don't know about that. All I deal in is facts or what, what is in front of me. And I swear when I was looking at him on TV, when I was being interviewed by him, I, I swear, I, I thought, I saw, I saw like a look come over his face, which is finally I get to relax with a guest who's not going to start spinning some crazy fairy tale that it, they don't have any facts to document it with. And so, I mean, it's not well, it's not up to me really, is it, to say whether Alex Jones is a good guy or a bad guy, a good journalist or a bad journalist? But I mean, I don't know. Does, does he have a right? To, to, should he be, should he be kicked off the air by people that don't agree with him? I certainly don't think he. I know he says. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. I was okay. just, just going to say I certainly don't agree with him being kicked off platforms for expressing his um, expressing his thoughts and opinions to the rest of the world. I, I don't exactly think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's actually very uh, very American to voice your opinion, and that's kind of what we do here on this program. That's what this show is all about: expressing yourself and having this open dialogue. With individuals like, like yourself. Well, if you say something, if you say something wrong, it's not true. How easy would it be for me to shut you down? Not, not literally, figuratively shut you down right now. Two plus two equals five. Michael, why'd you say that? Two plus two equals four, you fool. <laughs> and you, you, does, do people think that our audiences out there, they, they, they're going to listen to us if we say things that are transparently not true? At least that's right. not my world. I don't think it's yours either. No. And so if Alex Jones is saying stuff that people don't like, let's prove him wrong. Let's kick him off the air that way. If you can, I know he's in a jam with these Sandy Hook parents, but I don't, you know, I don't know why, I don't know why anybody goes down these rabbit holes, but I'm not a rabbit hole person. I'm a person that looks right in front, looks at what's happening right in front of my face. 
and I keep my eyes open and I tell you what I see. That is it. Amen to that. Pauses. I don't do explanations. I don't do history. I just say, hey, this happened. There are so many people that are saying this is not happening. Sorry, Michael, what were you saying? Oh, no, I I was agreeing with you and totally. And by the way, speaking of Alex Jones, again, I I don't have anything against Alex, but when I saw him do the whole uh, coffee attack where he was filmed doing this bit and he was out in the street and he was allegedly randomly attacked and had coffee thrown at him. I immediately thought, okay, this is, this is bullshit. That was a, that was someone on his staff. No way was that real. It just looked so pretentious. And that's when I sort of thought, yeah, he's, he's reaching more than usual again. And I never really thought of him as being the source of actual information, hard-hitting facts. His is more, of course, speculation. And a lot of people don't seem to really grasp that sort of concept uh, when they listen to Alex Jones. It's it's very strange to see that. Well, you know, so you hear Alex Mm -hmm. Jones speculating, and everybody says, you're a bad person, Alex Jones, for speculating. Then you turn on MSNBC, CNN, NPR. And the guy's going, yeah, I think Trump is probably an active agent of the Soviet, of, uh, you know, of Putin. Yeah, he's doing it. Yeah. What is this? You're nuttier than Alex Jones is. Speculation. So again, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with him at all being kicked off any platform. It's, it's ridiculous that they did that to him. I mean, you know, it's Alex Jones that day. It's you and I the next day. And it's not just, it's not just YouTube, right? It's PayPal. It's Patreon. Yeah. The way we can make money and support ourselves doing this. They try to get our books taken down. They try to get us kicked off here, there, everywhere. I don't know how it's going to end other than, you know, when I was a kid, we grew up, I grew up in Delaware. And when you grow up in Delaware, that is the, where the DuPont company was founded. This is a company that had a world monopoly on gunpowder. I think they made a buck or two along the way for 50 years. And so you heard all these stories about the DuPonts, how they came here. And how they were too rich, too successful, and the government broke them up, right? Okay, everybody hears that, knows that's, at least we know it. They were broken up because somehow that was bad. Whatever the DuPonts did, they didn't do 1% of what YouTube, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, and PayPal do to shut people down. That, I mean, that is crazy wrong. It's really wrong. The um, Just the fact that you have to really be careful what you say in today's climate one one bad thing you say that offends someone, now that individual can go and try to ruin your entire your livelihood. You know, there was a story published Amazing. just the other day at a, Yale, a senior at Yale. She's a black woman wrote this story. She talked about how all white people are racist, especially the ones at Yale. And she can tell by the way they smirk. Oh, my. And she said she's going to stalk her classmates for the rest of their lives in case they ever show up on TV. She's going to show up and remind them, everybody, what bad people they were at Yale. So this is a sport for lots of black people. You see it on Twitter and Facebook and other so and YouTube. It's a sport like finding some hapless public or semi-public figure and seeing, you know, and, and seeing them in, engaging in some real or imagined act of racism, then everybody piles on. Yeah. And they, they you know, the, the saying is, Twitter family, do your thing. <laughs> Twitter family. That's, that's a signal for everybody to pile on. I mean, what is that? Yeah, it's ridiculous. I can't stand behind anyone that would do something like that or dox someone. I just think, why would you even go through that trouble? Shouldn't you have something better to do with your time instead of trying to ruin someone's life? The answer to the question is no. Not exactly. The, the question also <laughs> exposes this enormous level of black on white hostility that exists in this country. 
And if it shows up on the pages of the Yale University School newspaper, I mean, there's no editors there. This is a very casual thing. The girl goes, yeah, yeah, white people really suck. They're all racist. And I'm, you know, we're going to, we're going to stalk these people. Does that, that's an indication of how mainstream it is, how dangerous it is, how omnipresent it is. That, that's just gross human behavior. Just, that's just so nasty to do to somebody. And on a side note, I was talking about uh, hate mail and, and some of the backlash that you get calling. I just wanted to bring up the fact that people get very angry at me over a few things every now and then. And one of those is how I always talk about Michael Jackson. I'm not quite sure if you've ever actually mentioned Michael Jackson in any sort of way, but people actually got really angry with me when I would talk about him and how I thought, in my opinion, he did some wrongdoing with, with children. You know, that's not even fair to call that an opinion anymore. It kind of isn't, isn't, isn't that true? I mean, it's, it's a, the signs opinion, are there. The sun will come up tomorrow. <laughs> okay. I think, you know, I think, you know, we don't need to call that an opinion. I mean, I was being it's weird. I mean, you no, know, when you look at Michael Jackson, it's like, wow, what, here's the thing. Here, okay. Here's the bigger picture. So you, with, with, let's just say white guys. Okay. Right. We're walking around going, what are the rules? Just tell me the rules. I'll play by them. Nobody knows what the rules are. Is pedophilia bad? Oh, yeah, it is. Well, then why are we elevating Michael Jackson to the heights of, you know, Mount Zeus? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> is it bad or not? If it's bad, let's do it. Is blackface bad? Okay. Well, I know we're going to jump on the governor of, of, of Virginia. What about Jimmy Fallon? What about Ted Danson? I mean, is it bad or not? Just Sarah, tell me. Sarah You're not Silverman. allowed to go case by case. Just tell me what the rules are. Yeah, that, that whole blackface, that is uh, very in right now. I'm curious if you're going to be dressed up as uh, blackface for Halloween, Colin, this year. Oh man, no, I never, you know, I don't, I don't do that crazy stuff. I'm just a guy. I know, I'm just a guy you know, that writes you. stories, makes videos, and looks at the world and says, you know, I think everything you know about that topic is wrong, and here's why. And so, you know, and, and so when I say that, I think a lot of people are entitled to say, "Hey, Colin, what makes you so smart? How come everybody can't figure this out except for you?" Well, you know, I don't know. It's like the emperor's new clothing kind of thing. All I can do is say, listen, here I stand with my videos, with my, with my, with my 911 calls and witnesses and victims and all these videos. I mean, all you got to do is show, prove me up, prove, you know, prove I'm wrong. I'll go back to playing golf with rich people. I don't care. Amazing. And of course, I did want to mention and talk a little bit about your latest book now, just to remind people out there that you do have a new product out there, and again, it's caused plenty of waves and plenty of conversation, which is something that I truly like, to be completely honest with you. This show kind of thrives on the whole controversial angle. I like the fact that it opens up dialogue. That's the most important thing, the fact that it gets the wheels turning for a lot of people uh, out there that have never really considered a lot of these topics, Colin. Well, you know, a lot of topics, that that's possible, I think. But on the topic of race and racial violence and black dysfunction and violence wildly out of proportion, when anybody says they're going to open up a di- – they want a dialogue, what that really means is, Colin, I want you to sit there and shut up while I harangue you with my fairy tales for the next 30 minutes. There is no dialogue. Uh, Colin, when so I first – Colin, I'm sorry to cut you off, but when I first brought you on, did you think I was going to debate you? No, no, no. And, and, and here's the thing. Uh, mm-hmm. No. And when we went back and forth, I think – yeah, I could tell you thought that. My thing is, there's a lot of shows out there, and my, I'm not, I don't have any, like, 
I get, I get, I get some mail every month. Sure. And every once in a while I'm on a show. I'll get, I'll get the following call. Somebody go, Hey, Colin, I really like how you expose black violence and black murder and black robbery and black on white rape. And I really like how you show reporters are in denial, deceit, delusion. That's why I hate Jews. Oh my. I mean, I just, I don't want to, you know, I don't want any part of those people. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want them around me. I, I don't want you. anything. I'm not a white, I don't want to talk, I don't want to deal with the white supremacists, the white nationalists, the anti-Semites. I just do not. It's like, go somewhere else. I'm not, you know, I'm not in your party. So that's, that was my only question to you. No doubt, no doubt. And I, I thought perhaps you might have thought that I was going to bring you on here just to try to give you some sort of ear beating. No, here's the thing. I, I go on black radio shows. I don't fear anybody i just don't want to waste my time that's the only thing yeah like, yeah anti-semite stuff right I, I'm, i will sit here i'll look anybody on this planet in the eye and tell them what i'm telling you right now anybody i like done that, about, that many, yeah many times i like that about you colin you definitely are a man of your word you definitely have some balls really do appreciate that and of course ladies and gentlemen he is the author of don't make the black kids angry can we tell them where that title comes from go ahead yeah and so you know, it's amazing how many places in this country that I think I thought, I mean, I've been around, you know, a fair amount to tell sure. the truth. I, I wrote a book that was actually not named on a list of, by one of the top 10 travel, adventure travel books in the year, a couple of years ago. So I've been around this country. Right. But all the, like, I didn't know Kansas City was a place where there's an enormous amount of black violence, black mob violence, but they have a place there called the Country Club Plaza. Hmm. And it's a, it's a plaza that's surrounded by all these like entertainment district, you know, shops, restaurants, movie theaters, you know, where all the, all the people go, but it's really close to a public housing project, i.e. a black neighborhood. Right. So for, so for the last 10 years, black people have been descending on this plaza by the hundreds and the thousands, fighting, attacking white people, going into restaurants, destroying property, assaulting people, robbing people, doing all sorts of bad business. This is all on video. So finally, they, the city council said, well, let's put a curfew on. And the, the former mayor of Kansas City was in town. He's a congressman now. His name is Emmanuel Cleaver. That sounds familiar. His cousin's name was Eldridge Cleaver. Oh, anyway, yes. so Congressman Cleaver was back in Kansas City, and they were talking to him about something else, and they put a microphone on his face, and they said, well, what about this curfew? I mean, are you do you think that's a good idea to put a curfew so we can get rid of the violence in this country club plaza? He said no. All that's going to do is make the black kids angry. Oh, okay. And so I thought, hmm, you know what? I mean, how many people on some level are thinking that every time they open their mouth when they talk about race? It's like you can't do – that's one thing you're never allowed to do. Hey, Colin, you're exposing all these reporters who are in denial. You're exposing all these this violence that is wildly out of proportion. You're doing the worst possible thing. You're making the black kids angry. So don't make the black kids angry. It's a great title. It's a similar story with my first, first, the title of my first book, White, White Girl Bleed a Lot. It's kind of a quote from a very, very nasty situation. You know, I'm actually always surprised that in terms of domestic violence and these domestic disputes, the woman always goes back to the man, even though they were beat to living hell. You know, my dad always yeah. told me these stories all the time. Yeah. You know, it's a mystery, isn't it? It really is but crazy. I'll, but, but Go ahead, Colin. It's a mystery, but I'll also tell you that I mean, domestic violence, uh, spousal abuse, wife killing, that is also wildly out of proportion among the fellas and their lovely ladies compared to white people, way out of proportion. The the women a lot of times are very violent, too. They throw things. 
You know, I've weapons. seen so many videos. I've never seen a satisfactory explanation as to what's what's behind all this female violence. If some psychiatrist or psychologist wanted to come in here and tell me it had something to do with an absent father, I'd probably say, okay, whatever. Yeah, probably you're probably right. I'm gonna have an to enormous uh, amount of it. Colin, I'm gonna have to bring you on here again so you could ride a shotgun with me. Uh, if I bring in someone of this nature, I'm sure I'm sure I could find a psychologist who talks about that. It'd be interesting to get you on here and have you talk to them as well. You know, the guy, the one guy that fits your description was a guy that just died a year ago. His Uh-oh. name was Marlon Newburn. He's in all my books. He's he's featured in a lot of my articles. He was a prison psychologist, and he was also a principal of a school. He was he's from Detroit. He spoke very plainly about what, this enormous level of dysfunction and how and the and the incredibly damaging consequences of it. Yeah, it's a strange thing to see here in America. And of course, Colin, I'm curious once more. Um, do you have any speaking engagements coming up, any kind of conference that you will be uh, attending? You know, I do a lot of stuff. Uh, I, do, I, do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of radio spots. I do a lot of podcasts, but I really focus on my own stuff. It's funny. I got it. Here's what happens. This, was ha- this is what happens with my speaking engagements a lot of times. Mm-hmm. The same thing that happens when I get interviewed by CNN, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, The Times of London. They call me up and, and, and what they're looking for, they're looking for some fire breathing person with the Confederate flag tattooed across their chest with missing teeth and who spits tobacco juice out. That's what they're looking for. Mm. So when I started, when I, you know, I remember, I remember this very clearly. I was having lunch with the guy from the New York Times. I could see how disappointed he was that not only wasn't I like that, but when you compared reporting chops, I had way more chops than he did. <laughs> I agree. And, and so, and so I got a call a month, a month ago from San Francisco. The guy goes, Hey, everybody in our club, they want to, I forget the name of the club. It was something in San Francisco. Everybody in our club, they want to hear you, uh, give a speech. Here's our club. What, I forget. Was it called the Wednesday club? I don't even remember. And, and their last speaker was Victor David Hansen. So I thought, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. But, uh, be fine. I think once the guy who extended the invitation realized what I taught was talking about and I had a great speech in mind. For San Francisco, because really crazy stuff going on out there. But uh, yeah, too think, much crazy stuff. There's always one person that stands up and goes, "We can't have that person around here." So I have a huge audience, huge platform that is not dependent upon a college, a university pre- pre- college president saying, "Yes, Colin, come in." I'm not really waiting for anybody's permission or approval. We're doing. We just like we're just going so fast. Yeah, I always felt if, if you get invited to one of these speaking engagements that they definitely have it out for you, that they kind of want to set you up. Uh, I'm not worried. I don't, listen, I don't worry about the clowns. I let the clowns worry about me. For sure. Understood. You know, there's, I got to tell you this. Do we have time for a San Francisco story? No doubt. Go ahead. And so they have the bar. Have you ever been at, you, 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 you've probably been up there, right? I've been sort of close to it. It was kind of, you know, what's, what, what's expected, but yeah. Okay. So I, uh, they have the big, transit system called BART, subways, light rail, the yeah. whole thing, all over the place. A couple, you know, about five years ago, the fellas and their lovely ladies, they were, they started going on there and just terrorizing people. And so the, the, the first thing they did to fight it was they put out an app that said, hey, if you, if you see something bad on our trains, you know, put it in your app and just click it and we'll get the information. We'll be ready right away. So after about a year of that, a, a paper up in the East Bay up there, they got a hold of the, of all the responses. They figured out that even though the BART ridership was like seven, eight, nine, ten percent black, the number of people, number of complaints 
that said there were black people on BART trains doing bad criminal things, it was like 80% of the responses were directed at black people. The meaning of that was, of course, that the app was racist because that is impossible oh for a situation my. to exist like that. Yeah, so that, flash forward a year later, <laughs> yes. there, there, there was a big story about 60 teen, I'm doing air quotes, teenagers. <laughs> See, that's what I do. I go in and say, listen, I'd talk to a cop on the scene. They weren't teenagers. They were black people. 60 black people go onto a BART station. They beat the hell out of the people on the train, six of them. They robbed them, stole them, ran off. All on video that we never saw. A month later, the, the vice president of BART is on the local one of the local TV news shows. You know one of those Sunday shows that nobody ever watches? Oh, yeah. So the lady uh, – no, no, it wasn't the vice president. It was the board of director of BART, Contra Costa. And, and the host says, well, what about that episode? Why don't we get video? She goes, what do you ask? I just got a letter about that from the vice president of, of BART. And this lady's on the board of directors, and the vice president is telling her what to do. It's usually the other way around. Anyway, so the vice president of operations, she goes, yeah, we have video, but we're not going to release it because to release this video would be too embarrassing to black people. That's a letter. Oh, my. I mean, that was like the holy grail of public official going, yeah, we're in denial, deceit, and delusion <laughs> about what's really happening on our trains. So much so we're not releasing the video. And BART is an enormous center That's of a... black violence on Asian people and white people. Hap, I document that a lot as recently as a couple days ago in Fruitvale Station, the famous station where they made the movie about black victimization. And I don't know, everybody up there seems to be okay with it. There's an enormous amount of bad business on BART, especially the trains coming out of the East Bay, Oakland, Richmond. A lot of black on Asian violence up there, an enormous amount of that. Richmond is very dangerous for those who don't know. Lots of gang uh, gang violence out there for, for folks who've never heard of Richmond. Uh, a I, wild know, I spent place. time in Richmond. I've been in Richmond. I've been in Richmond with Asian people. That's how, that's how I know what you know what's up with the Asians up there. Now, be careful, Colin. You're white. You might get shot. Like I said, I don't worry about the clowns. I let the clowns <laughs> worry about me. But I don't, you know, I don't take unnecessary risks either. That's for sure. Amazing. Now, of course, as we've conversed in all these great topics of discussion, I really enjoy talking to you, Colin. And I want to know what exactly are your thoughts on President Trump's current run? Do you feel he'll, he will have another shot in 2020? You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I look at these things. That's my question. So I see all the Democrats. Doing the identity politics, doing right. the socialism, doing the envy, doing all this stuff that I think is really bad. But I, I you know, I don't know what the re- I don't know how the rest of the country is viewing this. Oof, uh, I somebody know. knows. I mean, you know, I mean, people who take polls, they probably know. But I don't know. I mean, I look at it and say, man, I think everybody in this country should know this. But all of a sudden, I think everybody apparently likes this this new communist out of Brooklyn. What's her name? Ocasio or Cortez or whatever her name is. AOC, yeah. So. It's weird, isn't it? So it's, I don't know the answer to that. It's very strange. I, I suspect he's he might win another round, to be honest with you. I don't see another polarizing candidate who can actually top him. Just my opinion. Well, you know, here's the thing. And I try to stay in my lane. I'm just trying to tell people what's happening. As sure. soon as I start talking about Trump, it's like, I'm just another guy with an opinion about Trump. I mean, so all of a sudden, and that's okay. like, hey. Yeah, well, that's so like I keep the, my eye on what yeah. Trump does. Uh, here's one thing I do know. About, I, I have talked a lot about when it involved Trump. When he ran against Hillary, I mean, there's always three states you can, I mean, three states of mind you can be in with a president. You can be a, a candidate for him, against him, or you don't give a damn and you're not going to be get off the couch. Right. So Trump took a lot of people that were against, a lot of black people that were against Republicans, and he just kind of convinced them to stay home. That's not really, 
I wouldn't really, and since then they've kind of been trying to sell us on the fact that, uh, that a lot of black people are turning to Trump, turning away from the Democrats. I don't see that. I see deep, I see, I still see deep seated black on white hostility, antipathy. I still see deep seated identity politics where they're voting in a block for Democrats all the time, especially black Democrats. Yes. So, I was just going to mention, the fact that lots of individuals out here in California, where I'm at, they fall into what Maxine Waters says and Farrakhan, who I, I think both of those individuals are just nasty, dirty people with some of the messages that they're uh, selling out there. I, I think they are just evil people, in my opinion. And so we're sitting there looking at Farrakhan calling, using really nasty language very nasty Jewish people and yeah. other white people, you know. Farrakhan is very popular with the fellas. Very popular. Real popular. He's not a fringe character. Very it's a, popular. It's a trip. The Nation of Islam is very popular in 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 the ghetto. In and in, in prison. Prisons. In the prisons, exactly. You're right there, Colin. I definitely have a lot of respect for you, and I want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program, ladies and gentlemen. The book is called "Don't Make the Black Kids Angry." And Colin, again, that was a fun conversation. I enjoyed having you on the program. I definitely want to bring you back on in the near future. And, of course, before I let you go, I definitely want to leave you with the final word. And also feel free to plug anything you'd like, my friend. Uh, you know, I've already plugged my coffee cups. So, so, Love you know, that. Peep, go to, go to colinflaherty.com. You'll see a lot of different ways to support me through my little coffee cups, through <laughs> PayPal, Whatever, you know, buy my book, buy the book, read it, give it to somebody. You'll be astonished. So that's all. That's my commercial message for the night. Amazing. Time flew by yet again, Colin. I had such a great time. We will do part two again in the near future, my friend. Well, listen, I congratulate you on your show. You have a nice presence. You're very you're good. You're a good interviewer. And uh, I think you're going to have a lot of fun on YouTube. So I, I hope uh, I hope you get the chance to do that. Thank you so much, Colin. It, again, it was a tremendous honor to finally get you here on the, on the program and have you talk to my audience. Uh, they love you. Hey, what's not to love? That's what I say. Exactly. As soon as, <laughs> if you're backed by the facts, that's all that matters. Yeah, right. There you go. Indeed. All right, my friend. Good night and I hope you take care of yourself out there. All the best to you. All right. Bye bye. Good night. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That was Mr. Colin Flaherty. And checking on the time, it is that time once again, ladies and gentlemen, time for another break. And when I return, round two is next. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined by another soul, the UK's pioneer in cage fighting. He has also trained and promoted the first five UK fighters into the UFC. He sold both his MMA companies, Extreme Brawl and IFC, then later wrote the book, Anunnaki Genesis. What's going on, my friend Andy? How are you? Friend Andy, how are you? Yeah, how are you doing, Michael? It's nice of you you to have me on your show. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, my friend. You well, actually... thank you, my friend. Oh, no, I'm hearing, oh, no, I'm hearing... Uh, some strange uh, sort of um background uh, thing there going on. Hold on. I think it's the... Right, is that better now? 
I think so. Yeah, I think we got rid of that yeah, that yeah. weird echo there. Um, it was just like a cooling fan for the underneath the computer. I've unplugged it now. Perfect. Yeah, the echo's gone. No one's noticing it now, yeah. but amazing. I'm so glad you can be here, and I want to thank you for being a part of the program. You are actually currently in Spain, a long ways away. I, yeah, yeah, I live here now. Crazy. Yeah, I had to move out of England. It was uh, I, I had arthritis, and it was getting worse, and ended up in a wheelchair in England because it was so severe. Oh, wow. um, so we decided to move to Spain. Yeah, now where the climate's better. It's not so hard on the arthritis. You know, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I, I have access to a swimming pool right opposite me, you know, which is great. And, uh, the sea is just like a five-minute walk away from me, so it's a huge difference in, uh, Very in nice. uh, mood, changing your mood and changing your outlook on life than uh, being stuck in in a house when it's raining every day. <laughs> oh yes, it must be a, a whole different ball game now being there. It's such a beautiful place where you live. It's lovely, yeah, yeah, it is beautiful, yeah. It's yeah, amazing. It, it, you might, yeah, yeah, it is great. And, and what is it? Is it 6 a.m. where you're at right now? Yeah, it's 6 a.m. now. Holy yeah. shit. Nah, it's okay. I mean, I usually get up around this time anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, because I don't sleep a lot. Amazing. So, yeah. And yeah. Of, of course, my friend, you were a kickboxer and you trained a lot of fighters out of the UK. You ran your own organization. Yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. I was sort of the, um, I, I was cross training before anyone even saw UFC. I mean, from the age of six, I was doing judo, jujitsu, kaikashinkai, anything, anything I could get my hands on martial arts wise, I was doing it. I was training in my garage for two hours before school. And then I'd come home from school and I'd go in my garage and train. I'd, I made my garage into a gym. So. I became one one of the top kickboxers in England and British champion six times and and became one of the top kickboxers in the world. But I didn't I didn't really pursue it because I don't know just uh, I wasn't hungry enough. I don't think. I well, just, it's, uh, it, well maybe that was a good yeah. thing because there was lots of killers uh, coming up in the days when when you were around yeah. because of you know K one yeah. and you had all these these bad you know what uh, out there. These guys were yeah. really dangerous when you were coming up. A lot of people didn't really know these guys from the MMA world, but I, I yeah, had, that's right. Yeah, man. Yeah. So you came up with some dangerous mother effers. Yeah, but I sort of um, I sort of started at a good time because um, when I when I started teaching MMA, um, obviously no one had all the judo moves and stuff. There was right. another group of guys that sort of started around the same time as me called London Shoot Fighters. So we were the only two clubs really teaching. There was one or two clubs up in the north of England, but they weren't, didn't have a high standard. The London Shoe Fighter guys didn't have a strike. They just had wrestling. So right. they had no submissions. No, you know, they've learned it all now, but I had all that already. Yeah, you were, uh, you were ground, having your... My ground game was good already from, from, uh, judo. I, I based my ground game on, uh, uh Kashi Wazaki, who was five times a world champion. Um, uh, Japan and he won on, he won purely on ground fighting because he broke both his elbows so he couldn't throw anymore so he just he just worked on takedowns and the round work and I had the same trouble with my elbows so which is why I found Kashiwazaki and I sort of I trained I trained his judo I just used his judo and in actual fact I beat one of his top students from my second band nice so <laughs> amazing yeah you, you came up during the time where most people were just one-dimensional. 
Yeah, they were, yeah. And I, I got flagged for it for a long time, way before that. They, everyone used to say to me, oh, you're jack of all trades, master of none. But I was actually master of all. You know, there, there wasn't a, there wasn't a kickboxer that could touch me, and there wasn't, wasn't many judo players either. Yeah. And if I mixed it all together, I'd just make mince meat of someone. Um, and I, I kept it up for a long time, right up until UFC changed hands from you know, SEG, and they went to um, SEG, you know, to the yeah, first com- company, wasn't it, that owned um, UFC, and they sold it to the Fatitas, did they? Right. Or I think there was someone in between. Yeah. It was a, I think it might have been a previous owner right before the Fertitas bought it actually. Yeah, there was, there was, it was SEG first, then someone else bought it, then the Fertitas bought it. Yeah, that's right. I can't remember who the one in the middle was. Yeah, I'm trying to remember now, uh, but the Fertitas did buy that, uh, from yeah. somebody else. I'm trying to remember who it was. Yeah, uh, yeah. I can't, re- I, I have the name in my head, but now I can't remember it, but. Yeah, yeah, that, that was that was the that was the early early days, and you know it's it's pretty funny because someone in the chat room by the name of Gang of Four they said Liddell didn't need that last fight against Tito, and it's funny yeah. they mentioned that because you were there on a very infamous night, famous and infamous night when Tito Ortiz yeah, well, actually went down, and you were there uh, when he got into the scuffle with Lee Murray. And uh, Liam yeah, Murray, well, for those that don't know, he was involved in a big, the biggest heist in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. incredible. Holy shit! When you think about it, I'm well, bo- what, what happened blown was, away. Um, um, when I was I was promoting um, cage fighting uh, in in England, and there's some other guy competing with me, and uh, he he used a lot of uh, backhandedness to uh, to get to get to work with UFC. And then completely balls everything up. So then I got a call, um, literally a couple of days before saying, Andy, Andy, can you work for UFC? They're over here now. The other guys just messed everything up. I said, yeah, no problem. I'll get a team together. So I spoke to Nicola Fairclough, who was working for UFC then at the time. Basically, they, they handed me all their logistics. They had fighters coming in at so many different airports all over England. They didn't, they had literally, like, and then they expected them to use the underground try and get to London they would have been Americans all over England trying to find London because the underground no easy feat um so we had I, I put together a driving team and uh and had a logistics manager who worked out all the flights where everyone was coming in from and stuff like that on the face on their flight numbers we picked them all up you know successfully got them to the hotel etc etc right and uh got some doctors and uh stuff like that for you to see because they didn't have any um because uh, obviously this guy had let them down, promised them he promised them the world and didn't deliver on anything. So you know, I, I had to reach into my black book and uh, and get it all sorted. Um, yeah, so that sort of pulled, made the show made the show happen without without flaw. Um, I got a nice letter of commendation from them as well afterwards. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, got um got one of the guys to fight on there, James Zikic as well. I stitched up Elvis Sonosic and uh, oh, yes. Sonosic, is it? Yes, it and is. And James, yeah. They, well, they had to go to the hospital because they both had cuts in their eyes. And we went to the hospital and it was really busy. So I, I put on a white robe, pretended to be a doctor, went to the nurse and asked her for some sutures. Wow. So she gave me the sutures. Um, and I said to the guys, come on, let's go back to the hotel. I'll stick you up. So instead of waiting here for hours, so I went back to the hotel, stitched them up, and then they took them to the party. Um, and that's where obviously the, uh, 
altercation happened at the party. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, obviously I saw it, you know, so, you know, and Tito was drunk. Um, uh, Lee Murray wasn't drunk. Um, so that, that's, that's the big difference there. Let, let, let's put part. this into uh, context really quickly. Uh, both Tito and uh, Lee were both basically in their physical primes during this time. And yeah, Tito, Tito was just a bad, bad man at that time. Yeah, very, he was. Yeah, yeah he, he was really a feared, yeah. very feared at the time. And Lee Murray. Yeah, and he was, he was rude as well. He was very, yeah. very arrogant. Um, you know, I'm right. sure you, I'm sure he's got a nice side to him, you know, if you know him, but, right. um, he wasn't very pleasant to people that, um, he first met. Um, you know, didn't give anyone any respect. I remember he said something to me in the toilet and I said that you, know, you should be careful, mate, because, you know, people know what they're doing around here, you know. Yeah, that's and, one uh, thing that's you don't want to, really. you don't really want to mess around out there in the, in the filthy streets yeah, of London. I said something to him like along the lines of, you don't, just don't want to upset the wrong people, you know, just be polite, you know. That's right. No harm in polite. You should always be polite to everyone. I agree. You know, I shouldn't joke with one and, you know, even, even the, the Janet, be polite to him, you know, he's doing right. a job and stuff like that. You shouldn't, you shouldn't make fun of, fun of anyone or anyone's look or, you know, creed, color, anything mm-hmm. like that. You shouldn't, 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 shouldn't judge people on anything like that. You should always be polite. You know, that's true. It takes you a long way. Yeah, yeah. It's a um, better yeah, so to be that way. Yeah. What happened? What I, I think this is, this is what happened. Right? I didn't see all of it. I just saw the end part. Right, but I believe Tito's friend was having an argument with a friend of Tony Frickland, Right, who's yes. from Pat Miller's team. They started to have a little scuffle. Tony Frickland got involved. Tony Frickland was very close with Lee. Right, and I think Tito came over and whacked. Tony, right? And then Lee stepped in. Uh, I think Tito tried to hit Lee, and Lee just went bang and caught him right on the jaw. And it was a cracker. And it just dropped like a sack of shit, basically. That's it, you know? That happens. Did he get soccer kicked by any chance? There's a story that Matt Hughes describes that Tito actually uh, got punted. Uh, I didn't see it, because I was trying to hold back Bruce Buffer, who wanted to get involved. <laughs> Bruce Buffer? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he, he was on his way over there, and I grabbed hold of him. I said, Bruce, Bruce, you can't, you can't, you're the commentator. He said, yeah, but I'm a kickboxer. I said, yeah, but you're the commentator. If you get involved in this, it's going to be an even bigger story in the paper. You've got to stay back. That's so funny <laughs> that he... <laughs> <laughs> for those that don't know, Bruce Buffer is the commentator for the UFC, for those yeah, that don't yeah. know. That... Yeah, he really wanted to get stuck here, didn't he? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. It really is. Yeah, it's hilarious, really. But um, bless him, he really wanted to. He wanted to help out, but I wouldn't let him. <laughs> wow. I don't. Him. <laughs> Too damn funny to even uh, picture a. Uh, it's just something you wish you had on tape <laughs> that you could you could play back, and that you know. Yeah, I mean, Jesus Christ, it's like that... a sort of comedy, like a slapstick comedy. That's too funny. <laughs> Goddamn Bruce Buffer out there trying to fight people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but I'd like to, I'd like to see that fight, Lee Murray against um Tito Steel. Steel. I would, I would love to have seen that fight. And of course, I, I forgot to mention that Bruce Buffer actually got into it in an elevator with Frank Trigg many years ago. Yeah, see, he, he, he can have a row, Bruce Buffer. You know, he's no lightweight. You know, he might be a commentator, but that guy can fight. 
That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. You shouldn't judge anyone, you know? You yeah, exactly. He's judge him like, oh, he's just a commentator. And, and nah, he's not just a commentator. Yeah, whip like, your ass. Like, yeah. like, like Joe, Joe Rogan, oh, he's just a compare. No, 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 that guy can fight, man, and he's intelligent, you know? Um, True. People do all the time. People judge me all the time, you know, because I've always been a little bit overweight. So they, they judge me on, uh, you know, when they see me move, they're like, oh, Jeez, he you moves quick for a big guy. You move like a lightweight, even though you're a little fluffy. That's okay. Yeah, because it goes back to like when you're younger. Like I've done judo since I was six and gymnastics since I was six, so I can still do the splits. I'm 50 years old. I can still do a back somersault. Uh, well, judo is a angle. judo is a, is a good base to have. Judo is an excellent base to have. Yeah, it is yeah. the base art. Mm-hmm. I think anyway. Um, pretty adamant about that. And if you look back when judo was. Um, in its real form, when it was combat judo, um, when it was taught to the Japanese police, um, when it had striking and kicking in it and stuff like that, you know, it had leg locks as well. Uh, it was fearsome. It was a deadly art, and they 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 used it right up until World War Two. Um, combat judo, um, which was last used in the Philippines. I'll, I'll um, say this really quickly, uh, yeah, Andy. If the United States would go just strictly hand to hand combat with, say, Russia. Uh, the U.S. Yeah. would get just wiped completely. You think so? I honestly believe so. I think the Russians are way better trained in hand-to-hand combat than the American counterpart, to be completely honest with you. I think they would well, really to, do some well, damage hand-to-hand. I've been, to both, I've been to both places. I've been to Russia, and I've been to the States, like all over the States, actually. Um, I think what the difference is is um, in, in America, people choose to train you know, they have a choice. They choose to become a champion. They choose to do training. They choose to lose weight. Uh, it's, you know, they choose to get fit. In Russia, you don't have that choice. You know, you, you have to do, you have to do something. A combative you know, sport. It, it yeah. really is survival of the fittest out there. It really is. I'm just saying the Russians, the Russians are like a different breed of just tough individuals. They just are. Listen, they're just hard. When we went to, the, I'll tell you a story. When we went to the World Kickboxing Championships uh, in 1992, I think it was no 1996. Anyway, it wasn't long after Chernobyl, and we weren't too far away from Chernobyl either in, in Kiev, Ukraine. Crazy. And we stayed. We stayed. It was November the 25th. We arrived on some aeroloft plane that was half falling apart. You know. We were all like terrified, like getting off the plane. <laughs> and, uh, we got to the hotel. Supposed to be a five star hotel. It was no five star hotel. I mean, it might have been there, but oh, it was terrible. Had no heating, no hot water. We slept with the clothes. We used all our tape for our, that we used for bandages to tape up the draft of the windows. And uh, there was no food either. They gave us these stupid vouchers that they cut off one for breakfast, one for dinner. One of the guys lost his one, um, as you do. So we just like the next morning, and don't worry about it. Just walk in, get your breakfast. You know, I mean, it was just two really badly fried eggs. That was it, and like a little scoop of butter. That was breakfast. Um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't fry them any other way for you. They just, that's what you got. Anyway, he, they said, oh yeah, you've got no, no pass, no pass. You can't eat. Said, but you know, he's no, he's with us. He was with us when, when we all got the pie. He just lost it. And they were like, no, 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 he can't eat. And you know, bollocks just walked in, sat down at the table. Ten minutes later, three guys come in with a suit, two guys behind them carrying AK-47s. 
and the guy in front said, you pay $80 now. So, so we quickly all chipped in nice. <laughs> and got that $80 paid. It's crazy. We found a supermarket there and there's a, u- a uniformed soldier, right, with, uh, with a weapon around his waist and an uh, assault rifle strapped to him and he's packing the shopping for you. He's packing the shopping bag. Like, wow, that's weird, you know? That the stadium weird. that we got to, massive stadium, huge. I think Klitschko was fighting that night as well. He was fighting. He fought a friend of mine, Barrington Patterson. Um, so, so, by the way, Andy, I just wanted to quickly say, so you saw some great fighters coming up, like a young Sammy Schilt. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know Sammy too well. I didn't really follow much of his career, but, yeah, I know of him. Yeah, yeah, I've seen him. Huge guy. Did you yeah. ever did you ever come across uh during those times did you ever get to watch Andy Hoog fight? Andy Hug. Right. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, I liked him. He was very good. It's terrible what happened to him. It really is. I feel terrible every time I mention and mention him, but you know, you gotta you gotta mention yeah. him when there's other fighters, you know, like yeah, yeah, Sefo and yeah. and LeBanner. Same sort of thing happened to him that happened to the the Spotikus actor, you know, Andrew something. Uh, he had the same sort of thing. Yeah, poor, um, poor guy. Yeah, really bad. Really bad, that is. That's yeah, my, that. my brother had that last year, and that literally pulled, pulled through by the skin of his teeth. Terrible. Treatment. Yeah, so, Andy, yeah. my goodness, you've, you've lived a very interesting life. Um, after mixed martial arts, after that career, after you were done with it, kickboxing and everything, you went on to write a book called The Anunnaki Genesis. How exactly did that come uh, into fruition and into your life? And was this like a subject that you were already into before or during the whole uh, kickboxing venture? Yeah, well, I've, I've always had my outside interests. Ah, you know, okay. I mean, MMA for me was just, you know, I trained people. I promoted the first five English fighters into UFC. Um, I sort of felt like I achieved my goals there, you know, and proved that uh, that I'd done it more than once. You know, the scientific method, you've got to do it, you know, more than once. Right. So um, that was that was the recipe, really. You know, no, no one knew how to get into UFC. Um, so I was like, well, Ian Freeman, really hungry. I'm going to get Travis Fulton over. Got Travis Fulton over. He beat Travis Fulton. UFC were looking at him. They had Ian Freeman instead. And I did the same thing with Mark Weir. I did the same thing with um, uh, Lee Murray, who knocked out Romero on, on the body. And UFC had him as well. Yeah, he later went um, on to fight Anderson Silva and get kind of destroyed at Cage Rage. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. I like, I like, I like Lee a lot, by the way, even though he's, you know. No, he didn't get knocked out. Wild man. So, yeah, he's tough. He's a tough kid. Um, but, you know, I feel a bit sorry for him, really. I know people might think that's a strange thing to say, but uh, no one saw his face um, when, when, uh, when, when, he came, when he came to me uh, almost in tears and uh, said, they've taken away my, my I, can't, I can't go to America, I can't do the UFC, they've taken it away because of my, because of my record. That's, what am I supposed to do now? You know, and he was really, really upset. And literally, uh, it was literally after that, about three months later, that that robbery happened. Oh, man. Um, yeah, you know. Um, I just think, uh, you know, when you've got a guy like that who's grown up around on the streets and, you know, he's he's he's, he's probably never done good things or, or had that sort of discipline that he, that he got from fighting. And he was 
maybe in the process of changing his ways and 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 looking for the future, thinking, oh, I could be a UFC champion, you know, my life's going to change. I don't need to do all the other shit that I used to do, you know. And then have that pulled away from you, you know. It's um, well, I mean, it's like someone having a job, and then someone saying, "No, you can't do that job anymore." It's a shitty situation. Um, that's true. Based on, based on what you did at school. <laughs> but my goodness, he went, he he went on to he went on to commit the biggest heist in UK's yeah. history. Man, that is wild stuff. He did. He did. That's yeah. It's not good for you. It's not good for MMA. Not at all. Sure. No, I I even Uh, uh, Andy, I had to cut you off really quickly. Andy, I believe there's even going to be a movie made of of, uh, Mr. Lee Murray. Yeah, well, they they should make a movie of it. Obviously, I hope I just hope it's done properly. You know, Um, so so it sort of portrays you know everything, not just not just like a gangster movie. You know, one of those stupid gangster movies that you watch. You know, I, I like. True to life stuff. You know? Last time I heard Andy, he actually had got a laptop smuggled into the jail, and he was actually posting on a website. Yeah, I was speaking to him on Facebook quite a lot. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For for about a year or two, I was talking to him on Facebook because he wanted me to um, see if I could arrange for him to have a MMA fight in the prison. In the pr- oh shit, really? Uh, yeah, because <laughs> they're quite liberal out there uh, in, in Morocco. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, in Morocco. Yeah, yeah, he's in Rabat, Morocco. He's not too far from me now, actually. Um, I, I can see Morocco from my window. It's only like uh, five kilometers across, the, across eighteen kilometers across the shortest bit, shortest stretch. That's so crazy, man. Yeah. I, I'm just, I just keep thinking about uh, uh, the bank robbery and just breaking into all of that, and just, my God, I can't imagine doing it's, anything like that. It's terrible. It's terrible. What they did, snapping that family and uh, and and doing that. I mean, that's awful. You know, there's no excuse for that. You know, that's just terrible. Um, <clears throat> but that's life, though, man. Yeah, I mean, that's life. Jesus, what, what a bunch of nutters. I mean, he, his friend Paul, that was with him. I never really liked that guy. He was always always trouble. That guy was. That, ah, so you think he was influenced a lot by by his peers? Yeah, definitely, definitely influenced a lot. He's like. I've been out for it, for dinner with him and his missus and my missus and it's just you can have a proper conversation with the guy you know an in-depth conversation he's not like a an idiot yeah you know like like some thug you know that mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I just want to do that you know <laughs> one of those one of those he's not one of those no he's intelligent you know he's intelligent he's, he's, he's not yeah he's not he's not like his friend Paul that guy is an out and out villain that guy you know, mm. and now yes. definitely think you get influenced by people like that. You really do if you allow it. If you allow these people to come into your life and have such a strong yeah, impact you on you, yeah, you could easily be influenced by the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Yeah, it's a shame. It is a, a it is a shame indeed. And when exactly was the last time you talked to Lee? Uh, now probably like a couple years. Four years. Four years ago. Four uh, years ago. I wonder if he's okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've heard he is. Um, you know, I mean, he's got his own like big cell and uh, stuff like that. I don't, I don't think it's too strict over there. I think it's like, you know, if you've got a bit of money, then you can pretty much have what you want. Very nice. Um, yeah. Well, he, I know there's still a lot of uh, missing money, if I recall. Yeah, there's quite a bit. Um, there's um, 
also he's obviously he's got longer time because the British government had a deal with the Moroccan government to put the sentence they were going to give him over here or the sentence he's got there so yeah so he's he's, he's there for a long time that's yeah. amazing really is amazing and and it's so sad because you know I really like the guy I knew I knew there was something special about him even from the outside perspective watching him do a couple of interviews I knew he was a very intelligent individual, not like the rest, like you yes. described. No, no, it's what right. Yeah, it's what very I'm... intelligent, very down earth guy, very likable. Yeah. And man, yeah. he just, you know, sometimes good people do bad things. They make the wrong decisions, uh, shitty decisions, and, and that's I just a part of life. Like I think, I think it was like this. I think he saw it like the establishment in England disallowed him and took away his love, and his love was UFC. They took that away from him, and and then he just thought, right, I'm going to get you back. I'm going to get you back tenfold. That's that's what I think. Crazy. It's really heavy stuff yeah. when you think about uh, individuals like Lee Murray out there in in this in this world. Uh, you don't come across people like that, and that's you know when you come across people like that and you hear their stories, you are immediately thankful for uh, your own life story. You just automatically think about yourself and how. You are sheltered yeah. to some degree, and you are very thankful for the life that you lead now. And, of course, you want to have this sort of positive influence on the people that look up to you and love you and respect you and that are friends with you. You uh, play, you, you wear many hats in this world, and that's, a, that's one thing that a lot of individuals out there don't really grasp just yet, how important and unimportant you are in this world. It's very um, a strange conundrum, the human race and the way everything plays out in life. Um, so I don't think I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think anyone should take away something from somebody that's trying to change their ways. Um, I think what they should have done with Lee, instead of saying no, we can't, you know, we're not having it based on your past criminal record. What they should have done with him is say, right, you weigh an electronic tag to the venue, right? You're you're under. You're under hotel curfew, okay, until the fight, okay? When the tag comes off, you fight, and then your tag comes back on, and you come back to England. And that's that's how you're going to do these fights, okay? So you're under electronic. You break, you break that rule, you know, that's it. It's finished for you. So we're giving you one chance, you know, to do this. That's how they should have dealt with it. Agreed. And they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have had all that trouble then. Because, you know, all, all you do... By, by, by doing that is you just upset somebody. And if you upset somebody, they're going to get revenge on, on, you know, which is exactly what he did. He got revenge. He got revenge on the establishment who basically told him he couldn't do UFC, you know. <laughs> hey, he went out the deep in there. Yeah. It happens. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It happens, my friend. Yeah. So l- let's get into the um, Anunnaki Genesis. What exactly got you motivated enough to put this together because I got a copy of it and I think it's a fantastic uh, piece of work here you did. Yeah, it's, I just wanted to, I've read lo- loads of books on it, like, you know, Michael Tellinger and, um, uh, and Zachariah Zikchin and uh, I've had to read books quite a few times uh, as lots of people have told me they, they've had to do. Um, so I wanted to put something together that's easy for someone to read, you know, anyone can pick it up and Making that, make an understanding of it, you know. It's sort of written in layman's terms. It's not, it's an easy reading book, you know. Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a great book and I was actually really surprised in the Ford, you talked about Darwinism and creationist, um, very interesting stuff. I, I love to uh, talk about that with you. 
Yeah, well, you know, the there's there's two theories to our existence. Well, there's three actually um, now. But the first one is uh, God made us um, and put us here, and He made us from clay. I think it is um, or dust and whatever. Um, but that's just that's just a complete load of poppycock, really. Yeah, I don't really believe that myself. Knows that ain't true. <laughs> And then you've got, then you've got, I'm sorry for all the religious people out there, but sorry, but that just doesn't work. You know, you've got to have a tangible theory. You can't just say, yeah, God, God created us. Who's God? Where did he come from? Who created him? You know, that sort of thing. Then we've got Darwin's theory and Darwin's theory wasn't really Darwin's theory. It was, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace's theory. Um, and, and before that, the, the, the theory was actually created by a Frenchman called John Paul Lamarck. The theory of evolution, the mechanism of evolution was created by um, Alpha, Russell, Alpha Russell Wallace. And he gave his paperwork to Darwin, who then put his name to it and handed it in to Charles Lyell at the Loan Society. And that's how it became Darwin's theory of evolution. But he never even wrote it. <laughs> it was somebody else that wrote it. But it doesn't work for humans, if you think about it. You know that... Uh, yeah, we are uh-huh. we are two hundred thousand years old. That's our that's our mitochondrial DNA that tells us we're two hundred thousand years old. And mitochondrial DNA is passed from female to female. It doesn't change. Um, our nuclear DNA is billions of years old. So we're the only we're the only creature on the planet that has two conflicting DNAs. All the others are the same. Their nuclear DNA and their mitochondrial DNA is the same, except for humans. Now, if you if you read the 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 story, the epic of creation, the the Enuma Elish and the Atrahasis, oh, the Gilgamesh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You read all those clay tablets that were found in by Austin Henry Laird, um, and uh, and also the, the French explorer um, around about the same time. I uh, can't recall his name now. Um, John Paul Baptiste. That's it. Uh, Austin Henry Laird, they were digging at the same time, and Ashurbanipal in, uh, in northern Iraq they found a bunch of tablets, millions and millions of them, and they deciphered these tablets. Oh yes, the Sumerians, yeah. right. The first, the first guy that deciphered them was the, an English officer called Rawlinson, and uh, he, he cracked the code, and then later it was like refined by a French guy who, who really, I can't remember his name, I seem to forget. French guys' names, it's terrible, really. I should remember them. Um, but anyway, they deciphered them, you know. It's all very interesting. And the stories are incredible, really. Right. They, 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 they say that there's a, you know, the race, the Anunnaki. I know some people say that uh, it's all made up by Zitchin. They're just the people that want to debunk it, really, because they've got religious beliefs or scientific beliefs, um, you know. Um, so they don't want it to be true, um, but in actual fact, like where did this story? How did he make it up? You know, no, he's translating stuff. You know. By the and, way, uh, I, by, by the way, Andy, I'm curious yes. what what your opinion is on uh, creationist Ken Ham. What's that? You don't are you not familiar with uh, Ken Ham? He owns like no. He owns like a uh, a park, like a museum. Yeah. The Ark Park. Okay. It's called. Yeah. It's a. Oh. It's out really? there in Kentucky. All right. I suppose there's bits of wood in there that's supposed to be from the cross and stuff like that. Yeah, probably. Uh, well, he talks about Noah's Ark and... Okay. Yeah. Noah's Ark is, like, like, logistically impossible. 
you know, and so is so is the idea of God logistically impossible. You, you think about it. Like, think think about it logically, right? Right. There's how many billions and billions and billions of people have lived on the planet before us? Loads. Now, if if there was some sort of communication bridge between God and people, he'd still be answering prayers from thousands of years ago. He'll never get round to anyone until way, way, way into the future. Well, he might be answering someone 2,000 years ago. You know, it's it's logistically impossible. He believes There's man... No he one belie- being can communicate with billions and billions of beings. He, he believes and, that and, man um, coexisted with dinosaurs, in other words. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Uh, the way they... The way they um, the way they date uh, geological strata is not actually a, a science. The car uh, the carbon uh, the carbon dating is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can get you can get like shifts in the in the Earth's um, you know uh, oh so what's it called stratospheres not stratospheres that's the air plates tectonic shifts right. and they can push up strata right from below that's much older and stuff like that. And the way they, the way they, 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 they used like a, a radiocarbon C14 method, like a DK method. But, um, what it does is it gives you two readings and they take, they take the oldest reading. They don't take the newest reading. It gives you two readings. So one reading, will, one reading will give you like 100, 200,000 years and the other reading will give you like five or 6,000 years. <laughs> they just pick the one that suits them better. You know, um, you've got to think. Like the story of Grendel. Have you ever heard the story of Grendel? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good story. Yeah. With the you know the Beowulf story, right. the Viking, the Beowulf story. He's describing a Tyrannosaurus that he's fighting with there. He's not describing anything else. He's describing this creature with the massive mouth. It's got short arms. You know, it's got great big long legs. It's like a like a dragon, like you know. And he's cut one of its arms off, and you know, he's describing that. But he's describing fighting the, the the infant, and then he has to fight the mother. So it's it's very possible that they that they survive right through to to to, to man. And they, they, I think um, Dr. Paul Bow, his name is, he found some footprints in uh, um, Glen Glen Rose, Biloxi River in Texas. Dinosaur footprints next to human footprints. The, yeah, I that the human, Yeah, that the human footprints are about would make the human being about eight foot tall. So it's a pretty big human being. Yeah, it's um, really strange, especially some of the stuff with Michael Tellinger out there in Africa. He has this big yeah. footprint out there. Yeah, and if you read the book Forbidden Archaeology by Michael Cremo and Richard Thompson, um, they've got like a cute, they've got a normal book, and they've got an encyclopedia as well where they've got all the other findings in there. And you've got all sorts of stuff in there. You've got like a nail in a piece of coal that's like millions of years old. You've got a gold chain in a piece of coal. You've got an axe um, that's made from, cast from different metals. You've got all sorts of stuff like that. Um, how did it get there? Who knows? You know, time traveler could well be, or I don't know, just the strata, you know, the, the rocks just shifting. And uh, I don't know. It's just very strange. To, to have all these uh, things, there's even there's even a, a footprint with the, it's a shoe print actually, uh, and it's squashing a trilobite, and the trilobite is 500 million years old, and there's this footprint which is a shoe print which has crushed this trilobite, uh, and it's fossilized. So you can't dismiss stuff like that. You really can. Um, I, I did talk about that. 
Uh, some of these yeah. things with uh, Michael Cremo, which is interesting because someone in the chat room, uh, Gang of Four, actually brought up for a bit in archaeology uh, by Michael yeah. Cremo, who, who's been on the program, I believe, uh, a couple he's times. Brilliant. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's brilliant. Both of them, Richard Thompson and Cremo, they're absolutely fantastic. But, and, but, all they, all, but what happens to them is they get sidelined by the scientific community because the scientific community, they, they don't want that stuff. They don't want to. They don't want to deal with that stuff. Oh, big bone and stuff. They don't want to deal with it. Oh, we found some Egyptian stuff in the Grand Canyon. Oh no, don't want to deal with it. You know. Um, it's a very strange. <laughs> it's very strange. The Smithsonian, uh, the way yeah. the the way politics works for them as well. And uh, there's it's been a lots of institution. That's why. Right. The Smithsonian is owned by religious people. So they're, they're not, they so. don't want to show anything that, that deviates from their religion, you know, and that, that is the main thing. And that's why religion should never, never, never be in any halls of power like Sam Harris is. It should be on the fringes of society. Um, religion it should not be anything to do with politics or anything to do with science. It should be way, way, way out on the fringes. It, it is interesting it is. that you mentioned that because uh, from... What I gather on online and seeing statistics of and of that nature in terms of religion, uh, less and less uh, younger folks are just not religious whatsoever. It's not even a vital aspect of their lives at all. That's great, isn't it? It, it actually, in a way, in a way, it yeah. is. In a way, it is because what we see here in America is lots of lots of political figures. They really play certain religious cards out there. And yeah. by doing so, they're able to control a larger portion of society simply by playing up that card, the, the Christian card. You know why? You know why? Because it's a cult. It kind of is you know, a cult. No anyone says Catholicism, Judaism, Islamism, it's, they're all cults. This is why I'm not a religious person or belong to any kind of political group whatsoever. I don't want yeah. to be indoctrinated by anyone's philosophy other than my own. I've actually really exactly. prided myself from being an, in, an individual. But that, when I say an individual, that does not mean that I stray away from people and I'm not going to love my country and I'm, and I'm not going to help uh, anyone yeah. out there that needs help. That, that's not what that means. It, it just means that I have my own thoughts and my own opinions and I march to my own, uh, I march to my own drum, in other words. Yeah, yeah. The thing with religion is it restricts you. Um, like you, it restricts your learning capabilities because you've always got that boundary that you can't cross. You know, right. so you're just stuck. You're stuck in one place. Like if you look at Islam, Islam's stuck a thousand years in the past. You know, and Christianity had to catch up quickly, didn't it? It reformed. You know, but that was stuck a thousand years in the past as well, not so long ago. You know, right? But you know, it's true. It, it really is. It really is. And, and by the way, I didn't the, even. I, the newest religion to all of them is Islam. So it is really still stuck in the past. You know, I'm afraid to say, you know, with all its political agendas and stuff. Again, you're mixing religion with politics. It doesn't work. It doesn't so work. It really doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's really? used as, it's used as a tool to control others. That's what we've seen in the political yeah. realm. Yeah, Jim Jeffries said a brilliant thing, uh, one of the comedians, and if you watch some of the comedians like, on religion, they're just fantastic, you know, like George Carr and Carlin. Yeah, classic, you know, right. Really classic, classic. They're, these guys are intelligent. 
you know. Oh, no, by, no by the way, don't... no one's ever cut off the head of anyone in the name of nothing. I have to bring up the name of. I gotta, I gotta bring up the name of. Oh, you're still talking. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say I have to bring up the name of a comedian, uh, Paul Mooney, another brilliant yeah. mind that gets over uh, gets overlooked. But yeah. he was writing for Pryor back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Paul Mooney, legendary. Look him up in uh, people out there oh, who Bill don't Dunn. know. Just watching actually another American comedian, Bill Burr, who's fantastic. That guy is so funny. Ah, uh, um, you uh, know, Bill Burr, that, they, <laughs> Bill Burr yeah. that's another guy that, you know, I liked him a lot in his younger years. But as he grew older, you know, I, I'm not a big Bill Burr fan, to be honest with you. I'm not a Mark Phil, for Bill Burr, his com- his comedy lately, you know, now that he's gotten older, it's more more geared and directed towards uh, individuals with families, and he he does that sort of comedy where it it yeah. connects with you know people with family and kids. I get that, but I'm not someone uh, like the the kids who were used for political gain, uh, both on the left and the right. Uh, here yeah. in America, if you've been watching the stories, I I hate that shit, right. dude. I don't like anyone who uses kids to push anything. I get really angry uh, when I see that. I'm not for it. Yeah. I, I can't really no, support no, anyone who pushes that, that whole gimmick of, uh, the kids and, and this and that. Uh, comedians who have the whole, uh, family kid sort of comedy. I, I you know, I can't get fully behind it to be honest with you, my friend, but I respect, not, not I respect them. Don't get me wrong. I think he's yeah. hilarious, but later on as he's gotten older, I'm not a big fan. That that's just my honest opinion. I do like him though, but in terms of that yeah, sort of I'll style, have, I'm not I'll with have it. To find some of his latest stuff because I've not seen it. I've only seen the old stuff. Um, he's good though. But I know. Wrong. Yeah, he's good. He's good. He's, he's a grumpy comedian. <laughs> yeah. Makes him quite funny, you know? Which I like. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Uh, my favorite George George Carlin's just he's just the best though, especially when it comes to religion. When he talks about religion, dead on. So much. Yeah, he's just dead and he on. Convinces the Ten Commandments down to three, <laughs> and then down to two. It's just so funny. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, comedians here, uh, you know, they get a pretty hard rap, especially with the media. Just look at that um, Louis C.K. He had yeah. a, he was shut down for a long time, but now he's back. He's doing his act, and he's even talking about masturbating on stage again. So I mean, okay. It's pretty funny. Everything's correctness, isn't it? You know, you can't, you can't, there's no freedom of speech anymore. You, like there you really can't, isn't. You can't say anything. Freedom of thought is, is just completely gone out here in America. Yeah, you know, it's just like you can't, you can't express yourself anymore. You can't say what you think without being labeled something. Like, yeah, it's um, terrible. Like, you know, I mean, I, I say things when, 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 when I see young girls getting their heads cut off, you know, like what recently happened in Morocco by Islamic State. And I, oh, man. And I write something on Facebook and I get slammed for it. I'm like, hey, guys, I didn't, I didn't cut those girls' heads off. I'm just saying the guys that did, fucking out of order. What are they doing that for? Why are they filming it and sending it to the girls' mothers and stuff like that? It's just disgusting. No, but I'm getting, oh, no, you're Islamophobic. I'm not, there's no such thing as Islamophobia. What, what you know? we're seeing, Andy? Let's uh, break that word down. Andy, Phobia what? is an irrational fear of something. Right. And I have a rational fear of Islam, not an irrational one, you know? <laughs> well, Andy, what, what we um, see here in America and what you experienced online as well is that is a clear example of when corporations become bigger than government. 
They dictate yeah. everything and they have the stronghold in America. That's something that if you go here in America and turn on a radio, you'll never hear another host talk about that sort of thing. The fact that corporate, corporate, uh, corporate corruption is a real thing that, that is happening right now, every day, at every yeah, cool. second. It's, it's amazing. Uh, no one ever yeah, talks about that because people are phony. Yeah, yeah. All these private companies, these huge private companies, they do control everything. It's amazing. You it know? really is. It's just, uh, the world's just a mess, really. I where mean, does it end? The, the question is, where does it end? And yeah, uh, I was talking to, uh, Katie Hopkins. I, I told her that. Yeah, I like, I like her. <laughs> yeah, I love her. She's amazing. And yeah. I told her America is turning into the UK in a lot of ways. Well, and it, it's scary. You know what's happened? You know what's happened to America? You've forgotten all about your founding fathers, the greatest men that have ever lived, who created the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. You have to find your way back there again, because that is not just a document for America, that Constitution, right? That is a document for the whole of humanity. Right. The whole of the world should follow that document, because it's the greatest manifesto ever written, and, and, and nothing will ever be better than that. It is... 100% Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, um, Benjamin Franklin. Great men. George Washington, you know, uh, John Adams, uh, oh, Benjamin Harrison. Oh, you just, oh, all these fantastic men uh, just together in one place formulating this manifesto for humanity, not just America. And you've lost track of that. I'll tell you the worst thing I saw. I had an argument with actually an American friend of mine on Facebook who blocked me afterwards. And, and I said, well, what's Trump doing? Putting his hand on the Bible. I spoke, there's supposed to be like a separation of church and state. Agreed. That's, uh, that's the Second Amendment, right? Yeah. When I that's ask, Andy, when I ask of certain conservatives about President Trump and if, and, you know, I ask these individuals who are like really hardcore religious Bible belt types. Very hardcore Christians. Yeah. I, I tell them, do you consider uh, Donald J. Trump to be a Christian man? I, I notice when I ask that question, you see this, um, you, you see these individuals become very elusive with that with that question, and they're very careful how they answer. I always found that very suspect yeah. and very um, hilarious, in my opinion. But you know, when when you saw the inauguration, you had you had priests there. There was priests there. No, there shouldn't be no priests there. Sorry, you don't get to go to the places like that. Sorry, guys, you're completely separate from politics. I'm afraid. But um, when when Obama done his inauguration, he swore in on the Quran. I believe he did. Um, again, you know, you had a you know the uh, the a Muslim cleric there. No. There should be no religion. This should be the prerequisite for all politicians. If you're religious, you can't do politics. You have to denounce your religion if you want to get into politics. Because a Christian's always going to favour Christians, and a and a Muslim's always going to favour Muslims. I'm sorry, and 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 a Jew is always going to favour Jews because of the religion. Whereas someone that's not religious is not going to look at it like that. They're totally not going to look at it from a religious point of view. They're going to look at it much more objectively. Exactly. This and is why is I'm, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to right. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. It's okay. You could, you could keep talking. It's just that <laughs> that's one of the reasons why I always ask uh, guests on the program about their 
uh, if they had a religious upbringing. Um, all of it is really, uh, when I bring these people on, it's kind of like a little psychological, uh, game going on between me and the guest at all times. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm in, uh, I'm in a bit of a battle with them. Every guest I bring on here, I'm not exactly yeah. uh, shy to admit that, but I definitely get yeah. into the whole psychological aspect. And that's something that a lot of individuals out there listening to the sound of my voice right now have zero yeah. idea of what I'm doing here and the purpose yeah. and the message of this program. It goes completely over yeah. their heads. And the fact that yeah. this show is uh, kind of like a slight comedy show, in my opinion. Some people don't see it that way, yeah. but it kind of is yeah. a yeah. little bit. Yeah. But I'm glad you get it, though. You understand. You know how it goes here. I've got it, yeah. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah. You're sharp. You get it. I'll get it, mate. <laughs> I'm glad you do. I'm glad you do. I'm looking at the logo, I'm looking at the logo man. Oh, yes. It's a, uh, it's, um, you know. It's a bit of a 3D chess that's going on at all times here behind the scenes. Yeah. It's yeah. The way it roll. It's the way I roll. But again, you are a completely fascinating individual and you have lived a very, very interesting life, my friend. Yeah. It's been eventful, I'd say the least. And um, you, you, yeah, you were also in the movie Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, I accidentally fell into that part because I was the only one who spoke German on set. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I gave my friend a lift there. It was Tom Hanks' standing because his car was broken down. And he came running up to me and went, Andy, you speak German, don't you? I said, yeah, of course I do. And they were like, then they shitted me out with an SS uniform. That was it after that. I was uh, I was on the agency um, and I did I did eight weeks on that. Well, um, um, uh, guten Morgen to you. Yeah, guten Morgen. The kids, yeah. That's the only thing I know how to say in German. It, it is, yeah. But then, you know, there's quite a few Germans in America, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there is. I've met some. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few there. The Germans have yeah. always been so nice to me, and and the Russians, yeah. the Germans and the Russians, yeah. and people in Australia, they, they have been so kind to me in emails, and anytime I've actually met uh, these people face-to-face, they don't, well, I, these yeah. are just these are just strangers. They don't know about the show, but... Um, in terms of meeting these people from different countries, they've always been so kind and respectful yeah. and just so knowledgeable about so many different things. Um, yeah, and yeah. Germans are very really nice. They're they're so yeah. nice. And, and the Russians, uh, the ones that do listen to the show, the things that they tell me, just completely the opposite of what we hear uh, about. You know what what's going on? Like news. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're they're just so different and. I, you know, I, I've come to really just, I guess it's really changed my world perspective, uh, reading these emails and talking to them and just seeing that universally we are all one and all of our struggles, they're all universal. Things that yeah, you think, we are the, yeah, it's, it's, it's so crazy. Collective consciousness. It, it, it's beautiful. We, we are, we're all God collectively because we, we all share or tap into one consciousness, you know. Yeah, Pan it's, it's proto-psychism, that's called. Very the universe wild. was created, there was a, consciousness was created with it. You know, it had to. It had to think itself into existence according to quantum theory. And yeah, that you goes know? with uh, what you're writing next in your next book, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's called uh, The Other God, for, for, for lack of a better word, really. I mean, so people can sort of understand it or, or know what it's about. Um, 
but it's a, a quantum consciousness theory, basically. Um, uh, and what I, what I propose in, in there, and, and a lot of other people look into it, one guy who's really, really studying this at the moment, um, Dean Radin, um, he's got some books out, he's, he's brilliant. I mean, he's actually doing the scientific method on consciousness and coming up with results again and again and again. It's been about four... So it's been about four or five years since I last talked to uh, Mr. Dean Radin. Yeah, he's excellent. He's excellent. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the first the first time consciousness came up um, when they did the double slit experiment. You know, the double slit experiment where they right. shoot a photon mm-hmm. through, through the double slits Correct. and uh, it's, it's a particle and then it becomes a wave depending on the observer. If you're watching it, it becomes a wave. If you're not watching it, it's just a particle. Um, so it can make it, it sort of changes its state. It's in a super state. It's a particle and a wave. It's very, very odd. And then you've got uh, Einstein's um, spooky action at a distance, where you've got two particles that could be at any distance, and they're entangled. And you spin one one way, the other one will spin the opposite way. Um, uh, that as well. And I think the entanglement, the, the reason why particles are entangled uh, over space and time is to hold everything together. It's basically the strings that holds everything together. If you didn't have that entanglement, I think the universe would rip apart. But I think that entanglement's more than just a, um, you know, just a communication thing, you know. But they'll use that in the future to communicate with, definitely. Yeah, quantum. Quantum drive computers is very easy, you know. Spin down could be the zero, and the spin one could be the one. That's your binary code then, you know. And you can communicate instantly. Through time, you can communicate. That you could communicate back in time, like twenty, thirty thousand years, or more than that, like instantly. You can you can communicate instantly over billions and billions of light years. You know, with, yeah. with this uh, type of um, technology that they will come up with one day. Yeah, quantum mechanics is just so strange to get into. It's just freaky. So weird. It's really, it is. It just you just it just blows your mind. I mean, you've got. You've got everything is made of atoms. Everything, the whole universe is made of atoms. You've got right. to think about that. So that's that's basically our Lego bricks, the, the atom. And you look inside the atom, right? And it's like a little solar system, you know. You've got a positron and a neutron and an electron, right? And then inside of those, you've got subatomic particles, you know, neutrinos, etc. Like and then inside of that, you've got quarks that are even smaller. Yeah, and I have... think the consciousness is in the I think the consciousness is in the quarks, or 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 in the empty space between the, the somewhere there. You know, it's just a theory, but it's I a theory. Think, it's a theory, you know, but it's all coming to fruition in terms of artificial intelligence. Uh, I had talked well, to. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. Go ahead. the main the main thing is with when when you when you get someone like Edgar Casey. Have you ever heard of Edgar Casey? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sleeping Prophet. Yeah. yeah. Very, very famous. The most documented Sleeping Prophet of all time. And very religious man. Also, you know, grew up on a farm, old fashioned, was taught like really, very, very devout, religious, religious guy. And when someone asked him, he said, right, where do you get these readings from? Who's, where do you get the information from? Everyone expected him to say, well, God tells me. But he didn't say that. He said, no, I enter the collective consciousness and I find the mind that's going to give me the answer. So he's basically connecting with every single mind, past, present, and future. That's all at the same time. That's the collective consciousness. 
that's the what they call the Akashic field, the Akashic records. Every, every bit of information you put out there, um, every thought first before reality, like the car wasn't invented before someone thought about it. First, it was a thought, wasn't it? So someone thought of the wheel first. It was some. It was in someone's head, and then it became reality. Yeah, they manifested it. Yeah. Every single thing we've got today was a thought first, and then it became reality. Right. So, so by thinking it, you manifest it. You know. So, so thoughts are quite powerful. Yeah, um, they are. Yes. And also at the same time, if you think about it, when that thought or that invention has come out. There's someone else doing it at the same time or three people doing it at the same time. Why is that? It's because you put that idea out there or someone's put that. You've either picked up the idea from the person that's put it out there or you're the person that's put it out there and the other people have picked it up and they're doing the same as you. Your thoughts are not your own, they say. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. They're not. And that's how you can do remote viewing. That's why the CIA are so into remote viewing and and that's why they're doing something called temporal remote, remote viewing now, which means looking into the past um, and into the future. There's guys that can do that. They can temporal remote view. Um, so that's pretty interesting. And that's, it is. I think that's yeah. what the Montauk, the Montauk chair was, was used for that. It was to amplify, to amplify um, the, the temporal remote viewing. Um, and something happened, I think, and they shut it down because uh, I think what happened was that one of the guys that was remote viewing, um, into the past or the future actually manifested a dinosaur or something, a Tyrannosaurus Rex or something like that. That's crazy. If you um, did. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But like I said, when you've got a machine that's amplifying your thoughts and thoughts become reality, um, uh, that's what manifested and they shut, they shut it down. They shut that experiment down. Um, but by the way, Andy, yeah. I, I forgot to ask you this early on in, during the interview, but have you ever yeah. had a, I guess you could say, a sighting of any sort in terms of UFOs? Well, you know, I'll speak to people, I'll speak to people about uh, ghost sightings. And oh, ghost sightings. I'll, I'll okay. say to them, like, have you ever seen a ghost uh, to someone? I say, they say, yeah. So what clothes were they wearing? Oh, they had these uh, old clothes on. I said, well, you didn't see a ghost. And, they, and then they're like, oh, well, what do you mean? I said, well... Clothes don't die, do they? So That's if you true. saw a ghost, a real, if you saw a real ghost, he'd be naked or she'd be naked um, because the clothes would not be showing. If you see something that's wearing clothes, a person like they see uh, in the, um, the Gettysburg area, they always see soldiers fighting, you know. Yeah, I had a, I, it's, funny you bring, it's funny you bring that up because I had an English teacher who told me some yeah. weird stories about being out there. I think yeah, he, I think he even saw something. Temporal, yeah, that's a temporal distortion. And I think when you see, when you see ghosts with, with clothes on, it's a temporal distortion. You're actually getting a glimpse back in time or, or forward in time. Something to do with the magnetic fields or the, you know, uh, just the harmonics of the earth. Just bring it out for a short time and then it disappears. Could be like some seismic activity that creates like a huge magnetic effect and, and shows you just quickly a, a glimpse of the past because it's all recorded, you know. It's all recorded in in all the granite and all the all the crystals and everything in our so everything's recorded in that, you know. Wild. Um, have you have any had any of those experiences when you were growing up? Did you ever uh, perhaps go through the old hag syndrome uh, slash sleep paralysis? No, I've seen a UFO. 
um, that's sort of got me interested in the subject. I saw that in Greece in the broad daylight with about 30 other people, and um, it, it was it was it was a huge thing sitting on top of the mountain. And we thought it was a water reservoir, and then it just shot off over the sea. It left the wake, and it was just incredible. And that that's the only amazing thing I've actually seen. Um, yeah, that that was pretty 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 incredible. And like I said, there was about 30 other people that saw it with me. Um, I've seen was, a, and that was definitely, definitely I, a UFO. I've seen a few weird things out <laughs> here. I, I've seen yeah. a number of uh, strange things out here, but I do live n- near a naval facility, so it's quite possible I saw perhaps something that is not, I guess, known to the public. I think it might have been some sort of experiment. Oh, I mean, they're, they're, the space program that they show us is just, Mickey Mouse compared to what they're actually doing, you know, they, they're never going to tell us what they're actually doing. They're so far ahead, you know, that's why they shut down the Apollo programs. In the last, the last two Apollo programs that they shut down was like 18, 19, and 20. But the CIA carried those on. They actually did those missions because um, they found some some wrecked spaceships on the moon. So that's why they couldn't they couldn't make it public anymore. The CIA took over. They, everything, everything went through Langley anyway. Right, um, and by the way, you, it was never, you, yeah, it was never a you actually, um, oh, I'm sorry to cut you off again, but you brought, you, nah. well, you didn't bring this up, but you, um, made me think of the name of Elon Musk all of a sudden. I'm curious what your thoughts yeah. and opinions are on Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah, no, well, he's, he's one of the, um, the PayPal mafia, isn't he? He's the, he's one of the guys that, um, created PayPal. They call them the PayPal Mafia, don't know these guys, because they went on to, to create, um, QuickBooks, um, Amazon, I think it is as well, isn't it? And, um, eBay, all sorts of stuff these lot have done. So, yeah, I mean, he's a seriously intelligent guy. Um, but he's probably working on some black projects for the government, you know? Probably. Yeah, well, they outsource stuff to different departments, don't they? So not everyone's got the full picture. I'll tell you what, so, though. I'll tell you this, though. The Tesla Model S is an amazing car. That I, <laughs> I, I test drove one maybe a year or two ago, and after driving that thing on, on the freeway, it really changed my perspective yeah. on, on cars and vehicles. I thought once I got back into my truck, I thought, my God, you know, I, I need you know one of got. these. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. You know who got all of Tesla's um, paperwork um, when he died in the hotel room was um, one of Trump's relatives. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I can't remember his name, but I think he was a C- he was working for the CIA, and uh, he 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 got all the stuff um, from Tesla. Um, like when they cleared out his room, he got it all. I'll have to think of the name when I can, when I remember the name. I'm going to send it to you. So yeah, no problem. Now it is. I'm. I'm I'm not, I'm not 100% sure if he was CIA, he could have been, but he was definitely a government agent, some sort of government agency, one of Trump's relatives, his, his granddad or something like that, um, which, which explains a lot, you know, it really does. It really does. It, uh, someone, someone had yeah. told me long ago, it, it all depends on who your father is. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, the, if you look at the Kennedys, they were like, their father was like really wealthy, but he was in with the mafia. And he, he was in there. He was to be in with the mafia and, right. you know, he wanted to get into politics and the mafia helped him get into politics, et cetera, et cetera. Then you've got the Bushes as well. 
You know, you've got George Bush Jr. and then you've got George Bush Sr. ex ex CIA. Then you've got uh, Vanderbilt Bush. Um, um, then you've got the other um, the Bush that was selling um, ammunition to the Nazis. Um, I can't remember his name. Got on that, but then you've got the other Bush called Adolf Bush. You know who Adolf Bush is? Right. He's from from the same family. He's the creator of Budweiser. His uh, Bush's um, grandfather actually helped Hitler rise to power. That's it. Is it Vanderbilt Bush? Uh, I I'm 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 forgetting the name, but yeah. Prescott Bush. Prescott Bush. Pres- it. Pre- yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It is Prescott Bush. That that is correct. Yeah. And you had Vanderbilt Bush as well, who was like quite a high senator. Um, like let's say they go they go way back now that's, that's that's just going back a little bit that's some creepy you know, shit though right it's really creepy yeah. if you yeah man it's like it's like like then the politics is like the film industry you know you've got when you're in the film industry it's the sons that carry on the dad's work and so and so like right the, like you'd never guess in a million years that you know stan and laurel laurel and hardy you know you remember those comedy duo i sure do yeah, do, do you know who the, who Stan Stan Laurel's son is? Um, you know, I I've had this conversation before. I'm yeah, forgetting his name. Clint Eastwood. There yeah. we go. I don't know exactly if that's true, but I did hear those rumors. Of, uh, I've yeah, heard that from several people. Yeah, if you have a good look, right, you put the pictures side by side, and you can see that um, they're 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 pretty pretty similar, right. Um, and you, you can't blame Clint Eastwood. He wanted to be a serious actor, so he's, he's got to go in as a new guy. You know, he can't go in as the son of Stan Laurel. No one's going to take him seriously, are they? Right. W- what a time to be alive, by the way, Andy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jesus. It is. Good it Lord. Is the age of transformation, isn't it? It really is. It, it's, a, it's such age a... Of disinformation. <laughs> too much information. And fake information. You've just got to sip it all out. It, you're right. You're you're spot on. Even though you are far away from the United States, it's kind of an epidemic all over the world. It is. It is really an epidemic all over the world. The, the world is just going nuts, isn't it? That's it really I is. I mean, I look, I look at my country, England, and I think, oh my God, what is going on over there? I mean, like we're lucky here in Spain. They've got a lot going on here, especially up the northern parts of Spain and the Basque country and stuff like that. They got. Lot, you know, they want to be separate and stuff like that. There's a lot of politics there, but we sort of way of it being down here by the coast, um, quite secluded, and I like it. Um, London was just, oh yeah, just hectic, hectic. Yeah, it's a, a phenomenal. It's a phenomenal time to be alive, but it, it's incredible to see how divided all of us are. But then we are completely united in so many different ways that. So many people don't don't even take that for consideration. It blows my mind. Man, we're gonna see some shit in the next twenty years. You wait and see. I think just within four years we're gonna see some crazy shit. Yeah, that's when it's gonna start. The next twenty years are gonna be eventful to say the least. That's for sure. Exactly. It really is. It really is. And now again, I I hate to cut this short, but we are definitely running out of time. I. I want you to get any sort of final word, plug anything you'd like before we cut you loose here. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, if you haven't bought my book, Anunnaki Genesis, um, and you're new to the subject, then go and get yourself one from Amazon because um, it's got lots of different chapters in it. You can just click it open on one chapter, read that chapter. 
it does associate itself with other chapters, but it, they are they are all standalone chapters as well in that book. So, um, and it covers the Anunnaki, um, the NASA, and the Nazis, um, different stuff in there. Vito Sakari, Ryan went to NASA, the photos, um, what's on the moon, the real NASA, what, what you know, what, what the actual moon landings were all about. Um, and, you know, did you know all those guys, all those NASA pilots that went to the moon, they were all armed. They all had sidearms with them. Uh, don't you think that's strange? That is strange. That's strange. Uh, they all had weapons. They took weapons with them and, uh, and they had a assault rifle as well on board. It's a little bit strange, isn't it? It but really they, is. That's unusual, no doubt. Down. Once again, the book is Anunnaki book Genesis. And Andy Jardine here, live and direct. Uh, again, thank you so much for yeah. being a part of the program, man. Just let me know, yeah? It was being a pleasure. Yeah, no doubt. Take care, man. We'll do round two. See you soon. All right, Bye, mate. Friend, take care. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That was the author of the book, Anunnaki Genesis, Andy Jardine. And as we wrap up here tonight, I want to thank Colin Flaherty this evening, along with Andy Jardine. Both men were fantastic, in my opinion. I also would like to thank Deprogrammed Radio and coming right up also I can't forget Steampunk Radio out there and all of you out there in the chat room what a lively bunch thank you all out there for spending time with me here I'm Michael Deacon and with that said the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery until next time good night everybody